Hi there, and welcome to the Creative Endeavor Podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. Real conversations with real artists. And on the podcast this week, I'm talking to Joe Paquette, who's an amazing plein air artist based in the United States. Now, Joe is somebody that has been on my radar for many years, and I am just blown away by his work. This is a guy who just gets immersed in outdoor painting. One of those essential things, if you're going to be painting landscapes or anything of that matter, really working from direct observation, that's the key. And it's just so dang hard. So when you see somebody doing it at the level that Joe Paquette is, I mean, come on, he's one of the best out there right now, painting plein air, in my opinion. And so I really wanted to just geek out about art with Joe. But one of the things I wasn't quite prepared for was the depth of the conversation we were about to have. And for a lot of this podcast, I just had to get out of Joe's way and let him talk. I mean, I have so much in common with Joe and I was just resonating with so much that he was saying. In this podcast, you're going to hear so many takeaway moments that can be, you know, applied to your own creative journey. I know you're going to get something out of this podcast. I'm just so excited to share it with you. Now, I've got to apologize in advance for the quality of the audio in some places. We record these conversations over Zoom or Skype, and so please allow for a few bumps along the way. I'm also still setting up uh, an adequate space to do audio recording, so you might hear a bit of an echo behind me. Echo, hello, hello. You can hear in the space there's not enough dampening in this room to... Uh, create really crisp quality audio, but the show must go on. We must keep going. I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm not going to let it stop me from bringing you awesome conversations. Not at all. So you're going to be listening right now to the audio version, but you know what? There is a video version of this podcast as well. And there's a few visuals here that you might really appreciate, like not only seeing me in my studio, but getting a view of Joe Paquette's studio and some of the projects that he's working on. That's pretty cool. As well as there's a couple of places here in this conversation where he's referring to other artists. Um, Michelangelo is one of them, where I actually cut into the video version some of those things that we're talking about. So if that sounds like you and you want to see the video version of this podcast, there's only one place you can get it, and that's on my Patreon page. Now, before you freak out and go, I'm not going to go follow you on Patreon, dude. Come on. It's only five bucks a month. And with that five bucks a month, you not only get video versions of the podcast, which is looking like it's a weekly show now. It's pretty good so far. We're, we're, we're staying pretty consistent. All right. I'm going to get, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. We're, we're keeping it going, keeping the inspiration train rolling here. But not only are you going to get the video version of the podcast, but you're also going to get critique videos, Q&A videos, exclusive time lapses, things that you're not going to find anywhere else. So if you like painting and you want to take your painting journey even further in 2022, then hey, sign up over on Patreon and uh, follow me there. And there's going to be all kinds of content coming your way and you'll be shocked. It's just five bucks a month. You, you don't have that much time to be watching the hours and hours of content that I'm going to put up, but I'm going to be putting up that content anyway. It's good value. I'm just saying, okay, get off that one, Andrew. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. 
This was so awesome. And uh, just a huge honor and a privilege to be able to talk to somebody like Joe. So again, if you're listening to the audio version, you're gonna stick with the audio version, no problem. But just please take a moment to leave me a rating or a review on whatever audio platform you're listening on. That would make a huge difference to the show. It'll help keep this inspiration train on the tracks. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. This is Joe Paquette and the Creative Endeavor. Joe Paquette, what an absolute pleasure it is to have you on the Creative Endeavor podcast. Welcome. Thank you. A pleasure to be here, Andrew. Truly, looking for, been looking forward to this. So awesome, awesome. Well, look, so much stuff I have to pick your brain about. Uh, I've been following you on social media on Instagram for a long time, and pretty much since I first started Instagram uh, a few years ago. And I've been looking at your work, and straight away I was like, this guy. I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I was looking at it. No, this guy is the goat of on plane air. I, I can learn something here. And then when I found out Flew Hardy knew you and I was like, oh, man, I really want to talk to this guy because I've been just <laughs> admiring you from afar and looking at it. I'm always looking at, at, at your paintings on my feed and just getting insanely inspired. You know, you tackle you. some really interesting subject matter. I really want to dive into that, dive into the art side of things. But yeah. Could you just kick us off and give us a bit of an overview of your story? How did this creative journey start for you? Yeah, I'll keep, I'll, again, I'll, I'll try to be as crisp as I can. There is, um, uh, we all have a story, right? Uh, we all grew up in a, in, in, we all have our own story. But when I was younger, I never realized that my story was anything unique. But I grew up with a mother that, uh, from Germany, from the old country, okay? She grew up on a farm. They didn't even have a tractor until after World War II. This is my mother, not my grandmother, okay? Uh, plowed with oxen. Crazy, right? Wow. Then my dad, she came to America on a, on a boat, literally, and was sponsored by her aunt and uncle. His, her cousin just happened to be good friends with my father in Palisades Park, New Jersey. So if you hear the accent, you know where it comes from. You can take the boy out of Jersey, but you can't take the Jersey out of the boy. So, <laughs> so... My mom and dad fell in love. My dad, really talented artistically. Uh, and, and he painted in high school. I have a little painting hanging in, in my front room uh, uh, that he did in high school of a moose. Because uh, uh, his dad was from Canada, Prince Edward Island. And he was a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. Had basically in the 1920s gone on a two-month sledging sledge, you know, expedition with a with an Inuit guide. And I mean, crazy life. Like every, my family was from all over the place. I'm a I'm a mutt, you know, <laughs> you know, so there's French and German and, and Irish, Scotch, you name it. It's all in there. So anyway, my dad ended up working for the railroad. He got married, five kids, bang, bang, bang. Uh, um, and uh, he, the guy was a beast. My dad, six foot, six inches tall. He had his ring, fingers were the size 17 ring he's just gigantic and my tiny german mother who ruled the household so because of this interesting mix 
I didn't grow up like other kids. You know, there were five kids in the house. My dad was trying to support seven people on a railroad salary. And then early on, he was a dock builder, an iron worker, a mason, carpenter. He did all that stuff until he had to work his way up, take any promotion he could for the sake of the family. Um, but my mother didn't drive. So I grew up, <laughs> I jokingly say, like a veal. I mean, I was just fed and watered and put in the backyard. <laughs> so, and But... What happened there, pre, uh, you know, uh, telephones and all that kind of stuff, is I developed my imagination. I literally had my head in the clouds from as long as I can remember. And, and it took a, a really strong German mother to tether this balloon, I can tell you right now. So, <laughs> and, uh, and so um, uh, I, I just wandered and I played and I rode my bike and I drew like all kids, you know, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was drawing cartoons and I just liked to draw and, and, and I loved it, you know? And, um, but my dad had this amazing talent. He could have been a practicing artist, but he didn't have that kind of support all the way along. You know, that my grandfather worked for the railroad, the, the Canadian, the big Canadian, he, he said to my dad, no, get a job on the railroad. You'll be able to have a good pension, take care of your family, which all happened. So my dad carved stone and wood he painted uh he did oil paintings but he was a wild man he was not um as a matter of fact i have his palette hanging maybe i'll grab it later and show you i have it hanging next to mine and it's a mutton jeff thing it, he's just he was wild he'd have his cigarette hanging on his lip and he'd be doing this impressionistic painting he'd do this giant painting in like three hours you know but right before he died he was doing this every day just doing a painting you know and his palette looked like like a war zone you know and he'd say to my sister, Teresa, he'd say, he'd say, Joey's coming over. Get rid of the palette. Don't let him see that. <laughs> Mine is, you know, gorgeous and polished. And, you know, I'm real neat about my stuff. But anyway, so he was supportive. And my parents were supportive when I wanted to go to art school. But the thing that you're going to love, because I know you're an athletic guy, okay? Uh, when I was in high school, I was an insane athlete. I did three sports for four years, football, wrestling, and track. I don't know where I got the energy, but I would go... What I did gain was this insane level of discipline. So I would go to practice, come home, eat dinner, and then go lift weights for an hour every single day. I did that seven days a week for four years straight because everybody I played against was gigantic, right? So uh, they wrestled me at heavyweight, but I was the minimum weight you could be for heavyweight. So I'm 187 and I'm wrestling Carmine Boscarino, who's 270, and no joke. And oh, wow. these, you know, people that look like they're 50 years old. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly uh, trying to get myself really, really disciplined. And I was sitting down with the athletic director for some reason. It was some awards thing or something. And he, he looked exactly like Gene Hackman. You would have loved this guy. He had little half glasses sitting down on his nose. And he had the crooked nose from playing leather helmet football. And I always think the angels, we all have angels along the way. But a lot of time, they don't look anything like an angel. And Joe Williams did not look like an angel. But he's, he's interviewing me, and he stops in the middle of it. He folds his hands, and he looks at me. He says, what do you want to do with your life, Joe? You know, and I'm 17. I got a skull full of hormones. And I'm just like, uh, I, I, I love to draw. I had some uh, interest from some of the colleges to play football. So I said, Mr. Williams, I've got a dilemma. I, I was shocked he even asked me this question because it came out of the you know, out of nowhere. 
And he said, uh, I said, I could go to like Syracuse uh, and play football. They're interested in having me play and they have a good art program and I could keep playing sports and, and get my degree or, you know, or I could go to a good art school in Manhattan. He leans over and he says, Joe, you're a really good high school athlete. Chances are you'll be a decent college athlete. You will ruin your body. Go to a good art school. So Joe Williams, the, 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 the least looking, you know, angel. But I also had a high school art teacher who was wonderful to me. My older brother, Jim, was an art director and a graphic designer. He's like, Joe, you've got to go to art school. And at the time, School of Visual Arts in New York City was it. Now, wow. I didn't come from a family that drove us around to see schools and all that like parents do now. It was totally on me. So a buddy of mine from high school was a year ahead of me and he was going there already. So um, anyway, I applied and, um, and, you know, with my, my portfolio, I think about what I must've brought at the time. And it was the very best I could do. And uh, we had a really funny incident because uh, my, my friend had been going there for a year. He says, let's go get lunch. Cause your, your appointment is until two 30 or something in the afternoon. So we walk all the way downtown to McSorley's old ale house, which is the oldest ale house in the country. I didn't drink at the time. And uh, everything they serve, it's an Irish bar. So everything they serve, they serve in twos, right? They say, what do you want, light or dark? Bang, it's on the table, two mugs. Before I know it, I think I'd had six or seven mugs, eight mugs of beer. Anyway, I, I, I pretty much danced back to the interview in the rain. I mean, I was, I must've, I must've been a sight because all I can remember is the, the, the lady, the nice lady that was interviewing me. All I remember is that Charlie Brown noise, wah, 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 you know, coming out of the and, and I thought, oh, my God, I totally screwed us, this up. My one chance, you know. Anyway, I got in. Wow. <laughs> and then went to SVA for, went to SVA for four years. And I had the most amazing teachers, some of whom are still practicing out there, you know, awesome. fame, watercolor illustrator, Jim McMullen, uh, Bob Giusti, Wendell Miner. These are all like they were the top of the heap of the illustrators and designers in America. So I was really lucky, you know, that I had that. And I was studying illustration and design. But what happened is I fell in love with figure drawing. And I mean madly in love with figure drawing. And what I wanted to be was a fine draftsman. So what I did was I took, I think I could afford to take two classes because I've paid for half my own school. So I, uh, but there were some really kind instructors like Bruce Waldman, John Foote, who let me sit in on their classes free and just draw. And so I was drawn from the figure five, six times a week and then doing my design and my illustration studies and, and uh, you know, uh, ended up getting my degree, getting out and then working in the field. And uh, before the computer came out, there was something called marker comps. You're, you're probably too young to even know what that is. It was called a comprehensive. Before you could print anything out on the computer, yeah. you had to hire somebody, uh, a comp artist, which uh, I freelanced as, uh, because you'd have to be able to draw out of your head, but the, the art director would give you a thumbnail sketch and he'd say the, he the headline needs to be, you know, century uh, bold condensed uh, 22 point two lines. I'd have to trace off all the type out of a blow it up on a Xerox, trace it all off, transfer it to a, to a sheet, 
And then they'd say at that computer, uh, we need an African-American woman, an Asian woman, uh, and, and a white man, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I would draw all that stuff out of my head. I'd think of a light effect uh, wow. and I would do a marker rendering. So this was all just before the computer uh, in 83, I think the Mac hit big time, yeah. uh, 84, 85. Hmm. And then uh, what happened is I was just uh, working and um, I wanted to keep up my figure drawing. So in North Jersey at the time, you, there were figure uh, sketch groups in almost every town that you could go to almost any night of the week. And so I just thought, I'm going to keep this going. And I drove by a little train station. Speaking of Thomas Kincaid, it looked exactly like a Kincaid painting, 1890s kind of gingerbread train station. And it said art classes, but it said sketch group Friday nights, you know, it was like $7 or something. And I thought, perfect. So I knock on the door, this old guy answers uh, the door with the brush cut silver hair and the, and the horn rim glasses. And he says, what do you want? I said, I wanted to check in the sketch group. Oh, that's John Osborne that does that. And um, he said, you want to talk to him? Why don't you step inside? And then they stepped in and I saw these green landscapes, Andrew. I'd never seen anything like it. At SVA, everything was about technique and concept and all that kind of stuff. These things were poetic and tonal. And the tonal shifts were so beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. This is 1985. Hardly anybody was painting outside back then. Wow. And uh, I said, who did this? And he mm -hmm. said, well, that's John Osborne. And he said, well, why don't you come look at my paintings first? And so I'm like, okay. And, I, and it's... You know, he could teach the prismatic palette to, to, to John, but his paintings weren't nowhere near as poetic. And so I ended up uh, going in to see him, uh, going to the sketch group. And then he said to me, why don't you come sit in on a class? And uh, I said, OK. And I'd never heard of this prismatic palette thing, you know, and there's a whole vernacular attached to it, which is when you first hear it, it's mildly disturbing and almost cult-like. And so around the class, I'm just sitting listening and they're saying, so should I be using orange value gray here or cadmium red light value green, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, this is Jonestown, man. I got to get out of here before the Kool-Aid <laughs> comes out. And so I get up to leave and, uh, and he's like, well, where are you going? Said the spider to the fly. And so... <laughs> So I, uh, he goes, why don't you come paint? And I said, oh, I don't have any stuff. He goes, my box is right here. It's all set up. Totally set me up, right? And I did this awful little still life, which I've saved. I'll keep it to the day I die, of these flowers in a little vase underneath a warm light. But I realized that night that there was, this guy had something extraordinary that I had never heard of. Uh, and there were certainly, even now, there's very few people that are teaching the prismatic palette in any way, like, you know, the way it was formed from Frank Vincent Dumont, who taught at the Art Students League for 57 years. And he picked it up in Paris. Uh, and what's really cool about the palette, which you, you appreciate, because I noticed you do a Bistro Grisaille, all that for your paintings, for your portraits. But the palette has strings, value strings on it. You've probably seen pictures of a prismatic palette. It's got a string of grays, a string of greens. 
uh, in yeah. some cases. R- some remind me, is, if you don't mind, let's let's drill into that just for a second, because I, sure. I'd love some more, uh, forgive the pun, but some more color on that that topic there. <laughs> uh, did you see what I did there? It's terrible enough. I'm a dad no, now. I get good. to do the dad jokes, okay? Um, but yeah. I know I, I'd love a bit more depth. So so just really, let's drill into that for the people listening yeah, so as well. It, the thing is, it's, it's a very, is. yeah, it's a very complicated thing. That I'll try to I'll try to encapsulate as best I can for you. Okay, mm-hmm. and the basis of it is that the nature of all sunlight is yellow or golden. Every all colors move towards the golden end of the spectrum in the sunlight, and all color shifts toward the val- the violet in the shadow. So a red will move towards a violety red, a blue towards a violety blue, a green towards a violety green. So it's not just warm and cool which is what you hear an awful lot, like when I was in art school. Oh, it's a warm color, cool color. No, this is the whole yellow to violet thing. And what you're doing is prismatically controlling yellow from front to back in a painting. It's, it's so amazing. It took me a very long time to learn how to do it. Um, uh, but all color loses yellow prismatically as it goes away from it. So shadows get lighter and bluer, but everything doesn't get lighter and bluer, which I was told in art school. You know, there was these certain things that every teacher would say, oh yeah, everything gets lighter and bluer as it goes away from me. Well, in fact, shadows do get lighter and bluer, right? Because they're influenced by the atmosphere and the moisture in the air. But what happens with any color in the light is it goes through a spectral change. It loses yellow from front to back. Wow. Hmm. So that you can actually shift a color. This is the thing that Osborne taught me that I just, it blew my mind. You could take a color, any color. It's like pick a card, any card, okay? And I've done this demo for my students a thousand times. You take that color and say it's made with cadmium yellow light and cobalt blue, okay? Uh, And then as that goes away, you take some of that out. And instead of cad yellow uh, light, you're, you're adding cad yellow to it. And then cad orange and white then cad scarlet and white, cad red and white. So you're keeping the color at exactly the same value, but you're shifting the yellow so subtly that you wouldn't even know it. It's mind boggling how cool it is. So anyway, when I first started studying with Osborne, I was a cocky kid. And, um, and uh, he, I said, hey, I called him Chip. Chip, how long is it going to take me to learn this palette? He goes, Joe, the minimum four years for you to, he said, it's not just to learn it. He said, you need to integrate the skill sets that are attendant to this palette. So you need to learn to mix clean color, uh, clean, really clean value. So I've learned to, you know, he could paint a value shift, like a fraction of a value, cleanly. That's the key to paint it really cleanly. And that's, that was the key to the Hudson River School painters and how they were able to create that, that incredible sense of depth. Most people are a little too unintentionally, however, ham-handed. So what they do is when, when they make a shadow lighter, they make it way too light. So by the time they get to the horizon, and I know because you've done big vistas like I have, you've got to be around halftone at the horizon. You can't be too much lighter than halftone. Otherwise, you've got no room for your values in the light. So anyway, uh, I'm probably getting too technical here. But, no, this is uh, great. This is great. Yeah, I love it. But love it. The, the thing is that, um, that he taught me to do an underpainting, which I, I took, spent a lot of time working on. Uh, refining. And with an underpainting, you start with a drawing. And like I said, I knew you and I would have a great time talking. You love drawing. I love drawing. Okay. But to me, drawing's got to be like music. And I had an experience uh, that you'll appreciate because as a kid, I never went anywhere, never did anything. We barely went to movies. 
you know, I had friends that were going to plays and baseball games and football games and all this stuff. And I was just like, I'm in the backyard, you know? So all of a sudden, as an adult, I get a chance to go to the Philharmonic in New York with some dear friends took me. I'm, I'm like a little kid. I'm all dressed up. I'm giddy, you know? And they said, we, we want to do something special for you. We've got you the best seat in the house. So they put me on the balcony right above this uh, Emmanuel Axe. It was the penis that night. And I'm sitting up there and I'm just blissed out. And the music was, was amazing. And you're looking at these thoroughbred musicians play, like the best in the world. And, you, and the acoustics are amazing. So anyway, I'm getting lost in all that. But being an artist, weird things happen to us. And it was almost like the music started to turn down on a dimmer. And I squinted down at the movement that moved through the orchestra. It started here, it picked up here, went back over here. and over. So it was like wind blowing over a grass field. Physically broken, but optically connected. So what happened, the hair stood up on my neck. I'm like, oh my God, that's what beautiful drawing is. I'm looking at a visual algorithm for music. And I thought, if I could do that with drawing, so what I do when I draw and when I, when I teach drawing, because I do online mentoring now and critique and stuff, and I've taught classes and workshops for years, I say to people, look, the, the, the drawing has to be rhythmic and hierarchical at the same time, right? So meaning, uh, and, I, and I always, I pick, a, I pick a particular drawing that I send to my mentoring students, and it's called The Unmade Bed by Adolf Menzel, who I love his drawings. It's a masterwork, Andrew because it's hierarchical. If it wasn't, you, there would be conflict all over the drawing because it's a huge duvet cover, all crumpled up with all the folds. But the first thing you see is the entire thing. And then you see the mid-sized pieces and then you see the small pieces. That doesn't happen by itself. That's orchestration. So, uh, and then if you can combine that with rhythmic connectivity, so what I try to do with my paintings is I, I start with a drawing that's rhythmic and connected so it has, it's kinetic and not static. And so uh, a lot of people start, and I'm, this isn't pejorative that I say this, but a lot of people start by blocking big chunky shapes and then they whittle and whittle and whittle and whittle. And a lot of people get great results that way, okay? Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> How dare you? Okay, I'm going to end the call. Yeah, I know. Go ahead. You can smack <laughs> me if you were close enough. Uh, the point is that uh, I just think that there's a possibility. I'm a great believer in intentionality in all things, okay? Yeah, yeah. And Whistler is my guide for that. Whistler did everything intentionally, you know? Um, and that idea of drawing where you have uh, where everything is connected to everything else and everything is subordinated to one thing, just like a piece of music. And, and so if you've seen some of my little sketches I do and stuff, what I'm doing is I'm trying to think of the whole thing. And if you want to think about it visually, the, most of the elastic of our awareness, that's a phrase that I use, is about right. this big. People draw this when we're kids, we draw this. Might not, maybe not when you're a kid, you do all that. But as you become an adult and you become self-conscious, you want everything to be perfect. So you draw this and you draw this and you draw this and you draw that. And then you hope that somehow this is going to coalesce into a unified whole when often it doesn't, you know, and the stupid analogy I use in the class, it, it's stupid, but people remember it. I say, you know, it doesn't matter how many sausages you string together. You can't make a pig again. It's too late. You know, and that's what we do. We start with little pieces. 
So what I'm always thinking about is how do I connect this shape to this shape to this shape over here at the beginning? Mm. And so that's why most of the paintings I do, like the one behind me, all but two of the paintings, big paintings in my studio are outdoor paintings. Mm. The Italian one I'm working on right now, I needed a break from snow and I wanted to paint some green. So I found, you know, I found a reference that I could work from. Um, but I'm always thinking about that intentionality and the beauty in every stage. I mean, mm. I understand that paintings can have an ugly stage, but do they have to have an ugly stage? What if you could draw so beautifully? What if that underpainting that you did was so elegant and clarified that you got all that unity and variety at the same time that you could drape all your color and value on? Uh, what if it only got better and better and better with each stage? And I know that a lot of people that might think that's pie in the sky, but that's what I'm after. Oh, and and a lot of my I paintings are one layer of paint, not all of them. I don't always hit it, but a lot of these big paintings, like you've, I've, I've, on my um, Instagram account, I posted uh, just for a lot of the students out there, some some step-by-step -step things, but not explaining every step, but just showing every step. Mm -hmm. And And it's that idea of every part of a canvas having beauty. So that, how can I say this? Every aspect, every piece of that painting is important, but not every piece of that painting is of equal importance. So that hierarchy becomes really important. And so toward that end, I've learned to paint optically rather than photographically. Mm -hmm. I've learned to study the relativity in my periphery and paint the relativity that I perceive not when I stare into that thing. So, and if I'm looking in a given area in the painting, as I spiral out from that focal area, I don't always have an obvious focal point. Sometimes I'm moving the eye through the painting. You know, sometimes it's all about flow of light, you know, but uh, learning to paint optically has been a giant study for me. And it, it fascinates me because I think we become so unfortunately informed by photography that we look at somebody like Pizarro and go, oh, how crude. Pizarro was actually painting more optically than, than, than most, and, you know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, because what we see, you know, the, the example I use that I give in my class, and it's a really fun one to do. If I have a big group, I have everybody sitting in a half circle mm -hmm. and I'll say, I want you to look at any two people that are sitting right next to each other. I want you to focus on person number one and make an appraisal of edges, contrast, uh, and intensity of color. While you're doing that, be aware in your periphery of person number two. Be aware of them. Don't just stare. You can stare at person number one and be aware of person number two. While you're staring at that first person, you're, you're, you're starting to make an appraisal. And I'll say, stare for 10 seconds and do that and then move your eye to person number two. And people go, oh my God it's really that different. So even though I paint representationally, uh, I don't paint photographically at all because I'm not interested in the photograph. To me, a beautiful painting, Andrew, the, my favorite paintings, maybe put it that way, because this is strictly my opinion. They're a concert of calligraphic marks that create a subjective truth, not a photographic one. And to me, that's magic when that happens, you know? You, you just described your, the, the, the 
the impression I have of, of your work and looking at it. And, and, you know, for people watching the video version of this podcast, uh, they'll be able to enjoy that, uh, th this beautiful painting that's behind you, which is also on your Instagram. Uh, I've, it, Joe, I got to share something with you, and I hope you don't yeah. mind me saying this, but this kind of made me giggle uh, a little bit. Because um, I, 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 I was kind of freaking out like a little bit of a fanboy over here going, oh, do you have any idea who I get to talk to today? This is so cool. And I was, I was telling my wife, okay, <laughs> she's going to hate that I've told you this. I was pulled up your Instagram. I said, get a load of this. Check out this thing. She's like, who would paint that? Why did he paint <laughs> no, that? Not the okay, first no, time I've heard that. Okay, no, no, she's not, she's not an artist, but she's she's a critic. <laughs> so I was like going, I was like, you don't don't you see don't you see what's going on here? Like, okay, so for me, you take these things that are, you know, if people would just walk by them, everyday things, you walk by them. Yeah. And when you Prosaic. talk about yeah, you talk about like this this visual choreography, the music, and that you you take something that somebody would just walk by, and it's like this this view that really feels like an experience. It doesn't feel like a photograph, but it's real. It feels real. Like I'm looking at this painting behind you, and that's the way my eye sees nature. And you've translated it. I, I get really carried away with the photographic reference. I'll, I'll be the first one to admit that. Um, and and I, I, I do rely on it. But it's fascinating. And this is why more and more I've been trying to get into, you know, just work on my drawing, work on my observation skills, spend Absolutely. more time in nature, spend more time painting while in plain air. But to see you, like, producing these types of work, like, man, it just blows my mind because you take these things and, and you recreate it. So it's, it's almost like the viewer has the experience that you have standing there translating this. And, you know, you were talking before, you know, we we're talking a little bit about that prismatic palette, but those subtle little shifts. I mean, look at the yellow to violet shifting going on in that, in that snowy road behind you. Goodness me, man. It, it is, it's beautiful stuff. There, there's well, so thank many. Thank you so much. So, that means so a many, lot. I have a great respect for you and your work. Oh, come on, man. No, 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 no. You, you can't say that. <laughs> I just, because this is, this is so cool. This is so cool. Joe Paquette just told me that. That's awesome. <laughs> Dude, well, I, tell I, you, do. I tell you what, man, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But look, looking at these paintings, and it's just so cool to have a chance to geek out about this, but you also mentioned so much there that I really, I, I, I hope people don't mind me just, you know, picking up a few threads because this is something that I've been fascinated with. My time's your time, man. I've got the afternoon blocked out. Brilliant. There's, I, I told you, I knew we were, this would be, a, <laughs> this would be a big conversation. I knew awesome. it. I, you're I, quite, because you, 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 you really think deeply as a painter. And you see the, th the things that you're mentioning, not everybody sees, Andrew. Right, you know, right. I, I want to share a quote with you. That, Go well, for it. There's two things. Yeah, we, yeah. we talk about, and I, this is my hunch for you, too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, as I've gotten older, like I've always been attracted to uncommon beauty, okay? I think it's, it's kind of a soft pitch to, to, to celebrate the obvious, I think it's a lot harder to elevate the commonplace. And, and to me, it's much more interesting. Beauty with an edge, right? Uh, and Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you know, what did he say? Uh, your goodness is nothing else that has an edge to it. It's always proximity of opposites, right? Proximity of opposites is what creates tension 
what creates that friction and interest and that heat, you know? And there's, uh, I have a quote from Rainer Maria Rilke uh, hanging on my front door, which I've mentioned many times before. Uh, I read it in every workshop, I've committed it to memory, but it's from Letters to a Young Poet. One part of it that changed me, you know how you have those seminal moments in your life where you have either have a conversation or you see a painting and, and it does something fundamentally to change yeah. you. Yeah. I, re I read this quote. He said, if your environment seems poor, do not blame itself. What did he say? If your environment seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself. Tell yourself you are not yet poet enough to call forth its riches. For to the creator, there is no poor and indifferent place. And I thought, my God. And I, I committed myself to doing paintings, the, uh, finding things from my six mile drive from my house to my studio. And I did three 24 by 30s outside. This was years ago. And it was, it totally changed me. And, and there's something about uh, connection. You know, you've got to be connected to a place. You know what, frankly, and this will be a little controversial, but I think most of the paintings that are painted out there would be better off not having been painted. And I'll tell you why. I don't think the world needs another picture. The world needs vision. I think that's exciting. Like, I, I want to know your story when I look at your paintings. I want to feel something before I see something. Okay? Wow. I had, I had two, three great epiphanies with viewing art. Two of them were with Michelangelo and one was with Isaac Levitin. Yeah. And I had an out-of-body experience, okay? I was 22 years old at the print and drawing room at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I didn't even know they had one. My buddy, who was this brilliant draftsman, said, hey, Joe, some of us are going to make an appointment and go. Would you like to go? And I said, I'd love to. I was drawing like a fiend, reading, studying everything I could he said, who do you want to look at? I said, are you serious? I said, Aang, Degas, you know, Michelangelo. I gave him my short list. We get there. They give us white gloves, white cotton gloves, a magnifying glass. And they start bringing out the boxes with these drawings. Now, I know I'm not crazy because I photographed them all. They let me shoot them. I've got a set of black and white photographs of Degas' drawing of Manet, one of the finest things you'll ever see in your life. So anyway, I'm, you know, I'm, it's like I'm, I'm, it's like I've been eating tiramisu on top of tiramisu. Like it was just like too much. At the end, he brings out Michelangelo's study for the Libyan civil, one of the most famous drawings in the history of art. It's in a little frame. I know I saw it because I photographed it. The hair stood up on my neck, all over my body. I'm like, oh my god, what's going on here? The drawing was beyond perfect. That what came off of the drawing, Andrew, is what changed me. I thought, my God, a work of art. It can only resonate that which it's been given. So if there is true connection and love and intensity and search, then it has a chance to exude that. If it's an exercise, or if you're filling out a, a show card, you know, like doing a series, a lot of people do series. I don't, it's not that I have a problem with a series. I have a problem with external motivation. Oh, if something wow. is internally, if, if something is internally motivated, it has an organic growth to it, you know? And it always brings me back to Delacroix. He said, the student should develop well and naturally like fruit on the vine. 
And the problem is with all these people out there pushing workshops, pushing marketing classes, what you have is all these well-meaning people who are trying to market uncooked product. And so instead of having a, you know, so what you have is a hothouse tomato and not an organically grown one. Looks like one, kind of feels like one, but doesn't have a whole lot of flavor to it because the flavor is what takes the time. Right. You know, you've been painting for years. I've been painting outside for 36 years. Mm -hmm. I've done so many bad paintings. <laughs> I, you know, and, and it's, I, have, I have these people come and I, and I teach mostly adults. I've taught adults for 26 years, people in midlife, or as I like to say, slightly beyond. And um, most of them are professionals and they've been really good at things in their life. So being unremarkable is very hard for them. Oh and my so, goodness. Uh, I, I, yeah. Oh. But oh, no, no, yeah. no. I listen, man. No, as soon as you I'm said that, I no, not at all. Not at all. I'm so sorry to cut your flow. But as soon as you said that, I remember. I'm gonna call him Bob. All right. I, I, I I've been, I, I've been some really interesting places in my career, and I, I had an artist in residency aboard a ship that's a residential cruise ship. So you can't buy a ticket and just go for a cruise. You have to be rich enough and buy an apartment on board, and you get to kind of cruise around the world. I, I'm it. convinced it's like a tax haven for the for the elite. Uh, and, and so I call up and I say, Hey, look, I, I'm an artist. I can do this for you. Let me come on board as artistic entertainment, teach some art classes. And they're like, okay, you got it, kid. You're on. I'm like, really? <laughs> so it, it actually worked. And so I, I end up on this ship, uh, three different times. And the last time I was on board, I have like millionaires and billionaires that are the heads of industry yeah. and, and some yeah, captains of industry. I get it. And, and I, and I said to Rachel, I said, look, you know what? I don't care who you are, what you do. The minute you come into my class and you pick up a paintbrush, you become a five-year-old. <laughs> like, like, it's just No, you hit the nail right on that. Yeah. <laughs> and this one guy, this one guy, he just, he sat back, folded his arms. He's like, my painting is horrible. And I could tell when he was looking at me, he's like, it's your fault. <laughs> like he was looking at me going, Andrew, it's your fault. I'm like, Bob, yeah. You haven't even touched the dang thing. Just give it a shot, man. You're here. Just yeah. throw some color. Well, now what do I do? How do I make that blue? I'm like, what? look, here, I'll, I'll mix it for you. And he's like, right, right. And he was like sitting back like this going, no, you paint it. I'm like, it doesn't work that way, Bob. Like, yes, you're but, <laughs> Bob's used to Bob's used to being able to order people around. Yeah, but, but that's funny. It, Man, it's hilarious though. But but it is it is so. It's just as soon as you said that, man, it just it just. Uh, it, it really just triggered something in me. And I just immediately thought of him. That's not his real name, obviously. But uh, but you, you mentioned something previously about external motivation versus internal motivation. And this is something mm -hmm. that I've been uh, really obsessed with in recent years is, you know, why do we do what we do? What And what makes the difference in an artist's life? And, and because we get we get caught up in so much stuff that is external and and social media is a big one but the business side of art it just rips us out of that studio practice and that search of truth and i i've been obsessed with this and, and recently i've done something i've just closed commissions and 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 i was talking to right Rich. it's like oh we got a commission inquiry i'm like not tell them it's closed and it's like well why is that and i'm like well if i did something for somebody else i'm preempting what's in their mind what they want to see and I'm, I'm kind of trying to interpret yep. their vision 
And then I've got to go back and forth with this feedback uh, process. It's no longer authentic. It's also like, you know, you, you see these artists that do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started. You can tell. You can tell that it's like, okay, you're, you're phoning it in at this point. You're doing the same thing over and over and over again. There's yeah. no searching. There's no, there's no yearning there. But what, what I see is like, okay, the first painting that they did in that series, the first spark of inspiration mm-hmm. was, oh, there's something here. Then what happens is the external gives feedback for that exercise and they get mm-hmm. an instant monetary payoff for, oh, that worked. And then they're like, Oh, let's repeat the experiment because well, I get inspired. Sure, they got the piece I, of cheese. I, I get the cheese, yes. but then, then it becomes no longer about the inspiration. It becomes about the cheese. Yeah. And I, 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 I've watched this with so many people and I started to notice it in myself. And this is a beauty. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, teaching has been the thing that's opened the door for me in terms of authentically searching what Andrew is mm-hmm. all about. Because for me, when I have to teach somebody something, I'm not interested in selling the piece of work. I now go, well, somebody's going to get something out of this exercise, primarily me, but what do I want to paint? Not what do I think can sell or what does the client want? It's now, well, what here's do I the want problem. To paint, it's, you know? it, what you're talking about is the, is the danger of compromise. Now, mm. as adults, compromise exists and is important in all of our lives, uh, relationships and business and, and personal, but I think the, the problem with that a certain level of compromise, because I've certainly tried it myself, is that every time you do it, it takes a little tiny bite out of your soul. And I'm, oh, I give a, a talk on authenticity and creativity, okay? And actually, I'm writing, I've been working on a book for years, because I've given this talk all over the country, all over America now. It's an abiding passion of mine. And first, let me tell you how it came about, because you'll appreciate please, this with your please. son. Yeah, okay? awesome, awesome. I, 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 when, when uh, I, you know, I went through a divorce, I have two, two daughters who were older now, uh, and then started all over again, and then remarried my wife, Natalie, who's been absolutely the most amazing, uh, you know, uh, partner an artist could ever have. Um, and then we had my son, Joseph, when he was really, really little. Uh, and, you know, the kids, I love I'm one of those people. Everybody thinks I'm Italian because I talk with my hands. I'm not Italian, but my son always says, dad, you're the most Italian, non-Italian I've ever met in my life. I squished my kids all the time, hugging them, kissing them. And I was, but I was working seven days a week because I was paying child support. I was uh, supporting us here. I was all on one income trying to do this. And so I was working pretty much seven days a week. One day I'm like, screw this. I'm going to go home and see my boy. And I went home and he was really tiny. He looked like Tweety Bird, his giant blue eyes and long eyelashes. And I threw him up on my shoulders, which was his favorite place to be. And we go walking down into the village, go to the bookstore, which he loved. And I'd read him books, you know, we're walking down the hill. I'm happy. I mean, really happy. He's really happy, but he doesn't talk much at that point at stage. He grabbed my head, squeezed me like that. He was telling me he loved me. And this bolt shot through my body. We've all experienced it, you know, uh, and it was this magic connection, deep, powerful, uh, universal, every all wrapped into this thing. I swear to you, immediately following that experience came the question, why doesn't most artwork do that when you look at it? Now, I wasn't thinking about that, Andrew. 
uh, I think there is divine things out there. I think there's stuff that we don't understand. And so uh, what, and that set me on my quest and that was 20, 20 years ago. And I read everything I could get my hands on. And what I realized is the experience that I had with Michelangelo and Levitan was, in, was an epiphany. It was, a, a, it was an awakening. It wasn't just a visual experience. When I saw the unfinished slaves, by Michelangelo the first time. I had tears in my eyes. How the, oh, I want to swear so bad right now. Yeah. How the heck can a block of stone release that to me? Yeah. That block of stone was given that in its making. Yeah. That's what's missing with so much art. It's stuff. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with stuff. The world needs its stuff. It needs its decorative stuff. But, you know, it's kind of like I'd rather listen to a child tell me about their day than some over-enunciating poet read their poetry to me. Mm -hmm. Self-conscious, clever, wordy, you know, and that I'm not, I don't have a problem with all poets out there. I'm just saying that there's this thing about, um, this, this clarity and economy that comes from the desire to express rather than the desire to be heard. And that's what we're talking about. That's the conundrum with, with, with social media. Say that uh, again. I, and, and please, please just say the, that again. The desire to express. It's the desire to express over the desire to be heard. It's, it? it's like a book that's written to be said rather than written to be read. Look, Andrew, what are the... For years, I used to get Art News and Art in America, the two big uh, magazines for contemporary art, mm -hmm. the art with a capital A, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, and um, what I wanted to do is educate myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've studied art history intensively, 20th century in particular. And it's interesting when you read these articles about an artist and they're, they're, they're verbose, they're obtuse, uh, and it's like stretching taffy. Mm -hmm. It's always this extrapolation on the insignificant. If you're a great writer, you should be able to say what you have to say clearly and, 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 and be done with it. But what I realized is there's two words that are completely missing from contemporary art criticism, and that's love and connection, the two things I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's the nexus of this whole talk. That's the nexus of this thing that I, I'm writing about. I think we're getting further and further from that. Somehow that's not cool. And I think the great hypocrisy is none of these people live their life without those two things or yeah. wish they had it. But somehow if it's in your art, it's trite. It's sentimental. I wonder. It's bullshit. I, I, Sorry. I, I, yeah, no, look, it, yeah. I, I wonder though, and I, I, the people who are listening to the podcast and the people who follow me, you know, a little bit more closely online, like on Patreon, know I'm, I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist about some of these things. And I heard a great one, a doozy, about modern art uh, being a conspiracy that was formed by some some shadowy, non-government, uh, you know, bodies, let's say, uh, and their sole purpose was to destabilize culture. Now, I don't believe it necessarily, but when I heard it, I'm like, I've heard the same thing actually that's, a, that's I, I know an interesting exactly what you're speaking that, it's an interesting idea but but regardless you know putting the conspiracy to one side what is the result of that what is the effect of that because you get people who feel completely disconnected 
And, and one of the ways that we find connection, and this is why I love what you were saying about, you know, picking up these drawings and looking at it. I had an experience of Ivan Shishkin's painting, this, mm -hmm. um, I, I can't remember right now, the name escapes me of the, I can see it in my mind, it's either winter or December. It's, it's one of those, but it's, it's this massive snow scene of these big, beautiful tree trunks, large or something, and there's fallen logs, and there's snow that's just caked onto these logs and it's glistening and there's just a little bit of light coming through and there's an owl there it, it I, just, I know it, the painting oh yeah. my goodness and it's huge yeah. dude it is huge and i was looking at this thing going wow i want to do this for the rest of my life and just feeling like it just got me it just hit me right there in the heart and i was like wow and and so i see i look at modern art and i look at this this it it I, you can't tell me you have a, you can have a connection to a banana taped to a wall, all right? I I I'm, well, I just think there's you know what there's there's a the the, the thing is I, I think the best thing that 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 I can do, uh, and I, I work very intensely at this is not to denigrate one to elevate the other. The way I look at it is I talk about what I believe that 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 and I say there's room for both. If that's the kind of stuff you want to do, I totally agree with you. There's a there's a level of absurdity. There's a point where everything just gets so absurd. Mm -hmm. And then it just, it, it makes a mockery of everything. I mean, even Marcel Duchamp, uh, he, he, he was a nihilist, right? Mm -hmm. And after a while, he thought, art doesn't mean anything. I'm not even going to do art. And he just played chess for the rest of his life. The oh. other experience that I had, real art epiphany, was with Levitin. Mm -hmm. And I was young. How old are you? You're 30 something? 30. How old am I? 39 no i'm okay, gonna be 39 so, this year <laughs> yeah i was i was like 30 years old i was previously married my daughters were little uh mm -hmm. and so i was freelancing changing diapers and and painting one day a week i only had for 10 years i painted i had one day a week to paint okay wow. it was saturday and i could paint at night after the kids were in bed if i had this energy left right and so a friend of mine kept kept really pushing on me to go see the show of Russian paintings at the Sackler Gallery uh, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Finally, I took an afternoon and I went. I had been studying the American Impressionist painters uh, very heavily, Metcalf and Weir and Hassam and uh, William Merritt Chase et al., all those, you know, and loved their work and was studying broken color technique and trying all the different mediums. You know, we all go through those phases where you're trying this and trying that, and I have a shelf full of mediums. Anyway, just curious and interested. Anyway, I was studying all of these things, and then I walk in, I walk past the Shishkin, and it's the one... Uh, there's a shallow stream and they're, they're lot, they're called, um, uh, they use the pine, they grow the pines for, uh, for uh, masts for mm -hmm. trees. You've seen it. It's a shallow stream, muddy with a little fence and these giant pines. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. But when I saw Levitan's evening on the Volga, I had that same vibrational visceral uh, uh, the connection was so overwhelming. Again, I got like emotional and you know what, you know what it was. And it goes back to what we're talking about, this silly stuff that's going on on Instagram where people are posing in their bikini in front of their painting to get, you know, 50,000 <laughs> likes or whatever it is. Hey know? man, that works. And, I'm going to try yeah, it. Well, well, of course it works. But my point <laughs> is that, uh, when I saw Levitan, it made some of the other painters look 
cheap, like almost like bright lights in vaudeville. Like they were pushing color and pushing technique to get your attention. And what happened, this is what another one of those things, life-changing moment. I realized I'd been barking up the wrong tree and I'd been studying all these techniques when what I saw, what I witnessed, better word, with Levitan, he could only paint that with a depth of sensitivity that was so far beyond what most people have. And I realized I need to deepen my sensitivity and my connection. I don't need to learn about broken color. His painting had, there was nothing forced in it, Andrew. There wasn't a forced color. There wasn't a forced value. It was rhythmic and beautiful. Everything flowed together. It was uh, like, I think, I'm trying to remember who said this, uh, whether it was Whistler or somebody. He said a painting should look like it was blown, like a breath blown on a pane of glass, a single. And that's what that painting was. And the, 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 the power and the emotion, all without exaggeration. See, exaggeration, we use exaggeration in lieu of sensitivity, I think. I think we search out subject when we don't have sensitivity or we don't, haven't worked on deepening our sensitivity. So everything circles back to that connection component. The more deeply we are connected to a subject, that's why the stuff I've been painting, you know, I've painted these walls along the railroad down by my studio. You know, every time I smell the, the, the warm uh, creosote, I think of my dad going to work with my dad on a Saturday sometimes, you know, on the railroad. And it's stuff that people drive by every single day. A thousand people drive by that wall. And I just thought, my God, that's beautiful. How do I take that thing? But it's not, so it's a labor of love, truly, without being, uh, uh, you know, silly about it. It's like, I don't, you, you've looked at enough of my work. I don't repeat myself. This Italian painting I'm doing is kicking my ass. It's because it's flat light, it's front light. So at, there's 5% shadow in the whole painting, and yet it has to jive and have form. And, but I, it must be my German side. You know, it's good to suffer, I guess. You know, what doesn't, what doesn't kill you is uh, probably good for you. I don't know. The point <laughs> is that, that I'm not happy if I don't have that, that friction. So yeah. every painting I pick, mm -hmm. like the one that's behind me, mm -hmm. oh my God, was I freezing painting that thing. It, it, these, there's wires up along the poles. It needs a retouch varnish. You'd see it better. I didn't varnish it because it's dried like a pastel. But I had to paint those wires in, right? And so those, you know, some of the, a single mark this long. So you got to get just the right, you know, you just the right mixture of paint in the right brush. And I'm sitting there trying to do it in this 30 below parka. So I'm like this little kid in, in, uh, in Christmas story, you know, falls on the ground and can't get up in this winter clothes. I mean, I'm like, I, I got to take my coat off. So I'm, I'm in my shirt sleeves, zero <laughs> degrees outside, trying to paint these wires so I can do it elegantly and with a single mark, you know, so I'm not, you know, like, like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so there's, but all of that, mm -hmm. all of that, there's something about that. I think a numb comfort, is a very dangerous thing for an artist. And, and I think if you look at the uh, trajectory of any artist's career, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite things to do is take groups through museums because I talk about history, craft, and anecdote and just weave it all together. Because I've just been reading for years and it just comes out. Yeah. But I remember going to a, a retrospective of Francis Bacon's show and, and 
his work is really powerful and emotional and very dark. You know, I couldn't live with one of his paintings, but one could not get past the honesty and the, and the pathos in those early paintings. But when he got well-known, it started to be like cotton candy, the paintings. They, they lost something. Okay. Chuck Close is another one, and I'll get crucified for saying this because he's passed now. But, you know, doing a big, doing a head big with a grid, you know what? I'm sorry. I don't think that's a big deal. Klaus Oldenburg, a sculpture, he takes something small and he makes it big. And he does it again and again and again and again. So I, what I'm saying is, what, what is that? What does that mean? You know, and when I was in art school, they used to say concept, concept, concept to the fine artists all the time. What's your concept? Mm -hmm. And I challenge those people to say, no, tell me what you love. Because you know what real risk is? Risk is telling the world what you love. Then you're exposed. Telling the world what you think is not near as risky as telling the world what you love. And, and, and so I'm at this point in my life unabashed in saying these things because I've kind of bought my freedom. I taught for years because I and I've loved it. Thank God, I've loved teaching. And to me, teaching is a it's it's a calling, just like painting is. I never phone it in, you know. I work with very everybody very individually, and I take great care with everybody. And I've trained a lot of good painters now. But the 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 point is that there's there's something about uh, this this phoning in thing that you talk about. And I think what what's happened is it's become cult of uh, it's all ego based, right? Andy Warhol kind of took that up to a real high level. And then in the 80s, there was painters like Mark Kostabi in New York, who said, anybody that buys my painting is an asshole. And I just thought, they, like the level of arrogance and people were bought flocking to buy his paintings. And he was hiring art students to do the paintings. And it just, it's, it, it's like an absurd sandwich, absurdity on top of absurdity on top of absurdity. And it's just like, okay, you know what? I will tell you this much. I love a good concept, right? You're a thinker, right? And I'm sure you read a lot. I'm a thinker. I love, ideas are great, but they don't keep you warm at night. Okay, yeah. Tell me what you love. Yeah, yeah. And have the cojones to put it out there. I, now, somehow I've been able yeah. to support, I, I've been lucky to support mm -hmm. a family doing painting the paintings I paint mm -hmm. because I've pissed off more galleries than I've made happy, okay? Couldn't you just do another one of those? Right? Oh. No, I've had kids to support. When I hear people making all kinds of excuses, frankly, I don't have a lot of patience for it because I've, I've, I've had to fight through it myself and I've had really bad times, a lot of self-doubt. You know, I had a one-man show a number of years ago um, uh, here in the States. And I said to my wife, I want to try something. I want to start working large, more big paintings outside. Uh, but I'd have to quit teaching for, for the next four months, take off the spring semester. And that was our gravy, right? That was help pay the bills. And she said, Joe, I'm with you, do it. And wow. I took all that time off and I was, started working real big outside for me. And I had this show and it was a lot of this edgier stuff. And the gallery owner at the time, the gallery changed hands, unfortunately, because the prior gallery owner was the finest gallerist I ever worked with. And he retired and somebody else took over and lovely person. But she's like, I don't understand why you're sending us paintings of this junk. They sold one painting out of the show. I spent six months and I had all these bills to pay and everything else. And I, you know, I about, you know, I took, <laughs> took a header out of my studio. 
you know, and uh, I remember, you know, my wife saying, Joe, those are amazing paintings. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But, you know, the problem is we have to eat, right? You have to make a living, but we all have to determine how far we're willing to go to do that. When I worked in commercial art, I was paid for, my hands were paid for. People told me how high to jump and when all the time. And I did it because I knew the difference. But the whole time, Andrew, I was doing my paintings for myself. So what happened was by the time I got divorced and started all over again with nothing, less than nothing, I knew this is what I had to do, you know, uh, and it was just, uh, I just thought, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to live with myself if I don't do this. You know, and it, there's that quote from Emerson. He says, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think today, mo a lot of people just lead lives of quiet desperation. And we do what we think we should do. Or uh, uh, to quote a, a movie line, you know, how many people get through a day without one juicy rationalization? And we can rationalize anything. You could say, I've got to support my family and I've got to take care of my kids. And that's my priority and blah, blah, blah. And no one's going to argue with you. And you're not wrong. But you also know when you're not, when you're doing the easy thing, we all do. And so uh, I've been really fortunate to have the support with Natalie that I have. She's been absolutely a rock in the worst of times and, and just reminds me of being my highest self, even when I start to question it. So I think it's important that you surround yourself with people uh, who do that for you or friends who are your betters in different ways. They draw beautifully or, you know, this or that. And, and um, I just think it's, uh, I don't know, uh, people say, well, how did you keep relatively pure with your work? <laughs> And I say only half jokingly, I think it was a, 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 a lack of success. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. if I had gotten a whole lot of success early on, I might've been as susceptible as anybody else to caving. Yeah. I just think I did my own thing for so long. And I tell people, I'm not above it, I'm past it. Mm -hmm. I'm just mm -hmm. past being that person that's gonna paint that same thing over and over for you. I can't do that, go find somebody else. And I'm not being flippant. I do think when you do the thing that serves your highest self, it is harder, okay? Here's the, here's the, here's the picture for you that's part of the talk that I give, okay? So you've got external uh, motivation on one side, internal motivation on the other, okay? Now, these things are side, running side by side. Every time you make a choice that serves your highest self, uh, you, start, you begin to, the tightening spiral of finding out who you are organically, right? Uh, every time you do the opposite, it takes you to a different spiral. And every time you make another choice like that, it takes you further and further and further from over here. So what happens is I, I think about things in pictures. When I was younger, the incidents and intervals between incidents and events and how they connect to form who I'm meant to be were very broad. So you don't see them real clearly. But every time you make that choice, the right choice, the interval tightens and gets smaller. And what happens, that spiral starts to tighten. And then eventually that, that becomes who you're meant to be, really meant to be. I just think the world, particularly social media, is pulling us way over here. And, and you know, and we can all, you know, feel good about, you know, getting 10,000 likes on something or whatever. But in the end, you know whether or not you're serving your highest self or not. 
I'm not judging anybody. I'm just telling you, we all know. And I, and I just think if the, if the sponsoring intention or the sponsoring motivation behind why you pick up the brush uh, is, is it's either one or the other. And every time you do the, the, you do that other thing that's externally motivated, you're going to keep taking yourself outside of that spiral and you can get approbation for it and you can get money for it and all of that. But you know how many people out there, I, I, I'll give you an example. I have a, a, a collector friend and uh, he said, oh, I've been buying this artist and I won't certainly won't say who it was. And, uh, and uh, he, he said, what do you think? What do you think? And he had four or five of these paintings in his house. And I said, this is Camille Pizarro. This isn't this guy. He said, this guy's Hannibal Lecter. He just peeled off Pizarro's face and pasted it on his own. There's nothing of this guy in these paintings. Wow. And that's what I want to see. But the only way that's going to happen is honest search. And the only way honest search happens is when you unplug and get the F outside or into the world or have that model in front of you and you shut that out. You know, Rilke says in that, in that same thing, and I'm going to send you a copy. I'll photograph it and send it to you. You will love these two pages. It's the most beautiful thing written on why anybody should create. But he said, uh, you ask me whether your verses are good, because uh, was, it was a letter to a, this poet. And he said, uh, you have asked others before. That, above all, you should not do now. You are looking outward. You know, he said, go into yourself and test the deeps in which your life takes rise. That this is, connect to the things of your everyday experiences. Avoid at first love poems. They are too facile and commonplace. And they take a fully matured individual to bring something new to it. And what people are doing is they're painting universal themes and all this kind of stuff. And now we got all these people painting allegories, okay? Uh, and, 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 and I think we don't even, allegory is not even part of our language anymore. Allegory was something that was common in the 19th century. It's common in the early 20th century. And so I just think that why not just be honest about what you do, call it what it is, and make no apologies for it. But there's wow. a lot of figurative art out there, a lot of figurative artists who do these beautiful paintings. And now somehow it's got to be attached to an allegory or this concept that's going to be palatable for this other side to make it something. In other words, in some cases, not all, but it's an artificial elevation to, to, to be accepted. But you know what? We all have to have an inner screw you. You have to have that. This is a tough world. To make a living doing this, to survive in this, you got to have some brass cojones. You really do. It's brutal, especially if you're going to do your own work. Yeah. If you're going to do something that is that you know everybody's going to love and you're going to paint it over and over again and you do it well, God bless you. If that makes you happy and you're fulfilled, I'm not being sarcastic when I say that. I'm being sincere. But when I look at the work of early George Bellows, when I look at the work of Levitan, when I look at the work of Whistler, when I look at the work of my heroes, I see people that were stretching, that were doing something, you know, and, and, uh, and this I want to put out to you, and this would be a great thing for you to put out to your viewers or mm -hmm. listeners. Mm -hmm. I do this with my students. I say, if you could take three or four of your favorite artists and pick the, the one attribute from each of them that you could buy, combine to be the painter you want to be, who and what would they be? And I'll give you my example to make it easy. And then I'll give you mine. Go for it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, if, if, I, if I could have that raw honesty of early Corot, 
Okay. The field paintings he did in Rome, they were wow. magnificent. Okay. With the sensitivity of Levitan, the intentionality of Whistler and the genius of subjective choice making of Edward Hopper. Wow. That's to me, the perfect painting, but everybody's got their own. And what I've been doing with students who are having a hard time finding out who they are, I said, make that list. That will guide you. It will start to begin to pull you in the direction that you need to go. Hmm. I, you know what? I, now I'm just, I, I, I had a list. And this is what originally started the conversation with Thomas Fluharty about, about Kincaid. I had a list, but I'm, I'm really feeling like I, I should probably revise that. But I'll give you my old list and, and why which was, and, and again, it's only who I've been exposed to, um, but I, I, got, I got four. Uh, I mean, I have to add a fourth one there. But the first one would have been Carl Rungus because my, my dad had a, a book on the shelf, uh, Carl Rungus, Artist and Sportsman. And my dad was a big wildlife guy. So he did a lot of wildlife sculpture, North American wildlife, African wildlife. And so I had this, this book and I, I just remember just being fascinated with these impressionistic landscapes with moose in them and, and pronghorn antelope and mule yeah, beautiful and paintings, amazing paintings. And some of the works that he did for the New York Zoological Society were, were just stunning, huge, epic yeah. paintings. And he's got some prints hanging at like the, the Grand Tetons Lodge. And, and I, I saw a mm -hmm. few of these things original, but mainly all I had as a boy was just this book. And what I noticed about some of those black and white photographs was this guy getting out there and immersed in nature, studying and working plain air and what that did to his studio work. So immediately mm -hmm. it was like Carl Rungus, this guy has something and he's got an artistic practice that could be really important for me. And it wasn't until years later that I actually adopted plain air. But I remember looking at that as a kid, just going, wow, man, here's somebody out there doing it. So he, he was on my list. Then it was um, Ivan Shishkin seeing that big original work. Mm -hmm. And there were a handful of other works, but there was something about the scale and the subject matter. And, and talk about honesty and simplicity. I mean, here, th this, was, this was an example of that, that honesty of just going, it wasn't a grand statement about anything. It was just, this is snow in the forest and just stop and just watch this for a second. Just be here for a second. And then I found mm -hmm. that as a viewer, I was looking at it feeling what it would be like to stand in that place and almost having a physical sensation of cold, just looking at it going, and I was just transported, yeah. but you can't even put it into words. You can't, it's like, he gave me, you know, a very much almost a spiritual experience in this moment yeah. as a 20 something looking at this painting. Then I've always admired Robert Bateman. So he went on my list and the reason I admired him, I mean, not only is he a badass painter, I mean, he he's, he's done consistently some awesome wildlife work, but he just seemed to be somebody that was motivated and moved by a social cause. And whilst mm -hmm. I, I might have my own ideas about, you know, the cause and, and what he's attached to, I just admired that somebody could just take on something, feel something and just go and do something about it. And, and I, and I, mm -hmm. I really like that. And then, and then finally it was Thomas Kincaid. And this is when I got a lot of shade thrown my way, bro. Like a lot of people oh, were like, Oh, boy, why is I, Kincaid, I can imagine. Why is Kincaid on your list? I'm like, listen, dude, he went public. All right. And, and if you can sell 4 billion, and I know it's not about the money, I know it's not about the money, but $4 billion <laughs> worth of sales. <laughs> I know, I know. 
Um, it's like that Muppet, Jason twice, Jason twice. Um, no, but the, the, uh, the, if you can do that with your art, you're, you're doing something that, and I was like, okay. And, and I've kind of always had a bit of that motivational business side to me. And I've, I'm really interested in that because I, I guess for me, it was trying to keep the wolf from the door and go, how am I going to make this work as a living? And now, especially as a, as a father, Andrew, like, Andrew, yeah. that's what, it, that's what investing is for. Well, there you go. I, but I <laughs> listen, man, I'm still working it out. But, but I'm kidding. Here, I'm totally but, teasing. You. Yeah. But here he's 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 done this thing. And and even now, even still, after listening to Eric Kusky's book, the, the audio version of it, you know, recommended by Thomas Fluharty, you know, Eric Kusky's book, The Billion Dollar Painter, you know, he's a he's a massively misunderstood artist, but here was an example as well, like what we we're talking about before, this external versus internal. I think he had something genuine early on. Early, early on, he was feeling something, he was going for something. Yeah, it might not have been everybody's cup of tea. Look, it wasn't mine. It, I I don't I don't like his paintings. I don't like his even his early stuff. But I but I you have to recognize there was something authentic early on, but then he just mm -hmm. became a gun for hire and it's like no no the franklin meant need 15 of these now let's go you know and it just starts turning them out whatever you can yeah. do it's so so but but there was something there in that so if i could take a piece of every one of those i'd, I'd put them together that that'd be my my four you know but interesting okay. question man i mean it's 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 interesting to think about this sort of stuff isn't it and and what you're saying as well like Again, let's go there. Let, let, we, we've mentioned it, you've mentioned it a couple of times in this conversation so far about the social media side of things. And this is something, again, mm -hmm. I'm fascinated with because there's an algorithm there. There's, there's a system there. It's a particular beast. You got to feed the beast what the beast wants to eat. What's it want? It wants posts. It wants posts morning, noon, and night every single day. Otherwise, what? The algorithm doesn't favor you. So what's that mm -hmm. do to an artist? You know, And consequently, I'm thinking about strapping on my bikini and getting in front of my easel and just find something to post today, even if the painting ain't much. You know, Hey, look, check this out. Uh, no, I'm not oh, here's, really. <laughs> just... Just, just ponder this, okay? There was that study done a number of years ago, a particle physics study, where they fired two identical particles at a target. Mm -hmm. The one that was observed behaved differently than the one that wasn't. So we know that our, the way we are being observed affects matter. Mm -hmm. We are a collection of billions of particles. Why would we not behave completely different knowing that we're being watched all the time? Mm -hmm. And I, what I'm saying is that's going to, it, it, it's a no brainer that that's going to take you away from authenticity, not lead you toward it yep. because it, it's designed by committee, yep. right? All of a sudden, all these people like this painting, but they don't like this one and da, 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 da. And then, I mean, it's, it's like artists aren't insecure enough already that now you're going to, you're going to, you're going to lump this on there and, and you know, and you, so I just think, I think it's a dangerous thing. I think it's necessary. It's a tool. I use it, but I really try to, uh, if I write something or if I share something just to, you know, keep it either light, uh, so I, some fun, something fun once in a while, but a really great quote, uh, something in progress or a thought about something that's, uh, important to me. That's all it, it's, uh, I, if, if I think about the mirror in front of me, I'm screwed. And yet the mirror in front of you is what most people are playing to. And, and uh, so 
the, the thing is, uh, I, I have no idea where all that's going to lead. All I know is it doesn't affect me well if I pay too much attention to it. And I'm pretty crusty at this point, you know? But so if, again, if you think about the two spirals that we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, if you're posting all the time and it's like all of a sudden, oh yeah, this worked, this worked, this worked. Oh my God, I just picked up 300 followers. Da, 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 da. Oh, now I'm an influencer. And see what's, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you an interesting thing about this, okay? You have a yeah. lot, you have a lot of followers. I don't have a lot, I, I have a handful of followers. The right. point is that, that this influencer thing, it favors everything that I feel is wrong with the world. I think the level of narcissism that we're dealing with, this, this, this uh, aggrandizement of self doesn't lead one towards humility. So the only way one develops sensitivity is through humility, not through hubris. Yeah. Sensitivity comes when you're humble and open to receive, not when you're standing there pounding your chest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so yeah. a, a number of years ago, I almost quit painting. God's honest truth. I've never told this story. And it was because I saw all of the writing on the wall for this stuff. I was digging in deep on these paintings. I was pouring my heart and soul into them. And it wasn't sour grapes either. What it was is seeing, witnessing that, that so much of this stuff that I find repulsive was being richly rewarded. As somebody once said, the Kardashianization of America right? That somehow that our, our lives are shallow enough that these, we've made these people billionaires. What's, that's indicative of something. That's, a, that's a, it's an indicator. And so yep. the, and, and, and the problem is, and now, and, and these stupid algorithms, now if you don't do reels, you're, you're, that you're not in the algorithm the same way anymore. They want you to start to posting all these little videos. So get, you know what they're doing? They're saying, you got to post this thing that's really quick. Every time you do that, you're adding to the pie of one more person that has no attention span to even view a work of art. This is a much bigger problem. There's a famous photograph. You've probably seen it. It was all over online for years, and it's a Nightwatch painting by Rembrandt with all these kids sitting on that big round couch, all looking at their phones in front of the night watch painting. Nobody's even looking at the painting. And, and uh, but, you know, viewing art re- requires uh, participation. And if you're cutting, if you're, if you're turning life into a five second TikTok or a 10 second TikTok, well, then you sure as hell got to be doing something extreme. So you see these people doing this stupid stuff in the gym, you know, where they're, where they're doing something really crazy and dangerous, you know, to get attention and everything is, is being ramped up, ramped up, ramped up. So we're getting, again, further and further away from anything organic, you know, that this, uh, as, a, as a painter, particularly an outdoor painter, you got to learn to shut up and be quiet. And I've said this before in a podcast with Eric Rhodes years ago, I'll tell you, I, there's a lot of people painting outdoors, okay? Uh, and, uh, but I don't think there's a whole, a, a huge number of great outdoor painters. And, uh, I, I think there's a lot of good ones, but not a lot of great ones. But the thing that's common with all the great ones is humility. You cannot paint outside as much as I have and, and get it and get full of yourself because, you know, I played football. I got my ass kicked. I know what that feels like, you know, and there are times when I'm painting 
Uh, I'm sorry if I use a sports analogy for those of you that haven't played, but if you've done anything like it, just take it, take it for what it's worth. Because I played on the line, it was a center and a nose guard. And all these guys were 20, 30 pounds heavier than me. And you look at them, you go, oh, good God. And I looked like a 12-year-old, you know, and these guys had facial hair and were gigantic. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? But you get in the game and it's give a hit, take a hit, give a hit, take a hit. And all of a sudden you get into the rhythm of that. And before you know it, the game's over and you did okay. And that's what a painting is like for me outdoors. I never know if I'm going to get it. And that's not um, uh, false modesty. I always pick difficult stuff and I go, I'm always going to keep right at the edge, that vibrational edge of, of what I'm capable of. And there are times where it's that give a hit, take a hit, give a hit. And some days I come home and I'm pretty beaten up, you know, and, uh, and, and a little despondent. I'm like, I didn't, you know, I didn't hit it today. But uh, like I said, there's something about that friction that makes you feel alive too. Uh, and, and, you know, sitting in front of a computer screen painting to me is not the same thing as tasting it, touching it, smelling it. I wrote something. It's on my, you, you might've read it. It was why paint plein air, why paint from life. It's very short. It's only a paragraph long, but I was asked to write this for a plein air painters of America catalog as a forward. And it's about all of these things. And it's very, very crisp and concise. But it, uh, I think every time you engage a sense in the experience, it's a spoke like in a bike wheel. Every spoke touches the dome of the experience. Taste it, touch it, smell it, feel it, hear it, you know? And I'll tell my students in workshops, unless you have an issue with, some people have a, a problem not being able to concentrate or whatever, they need background noise. I'll say, if you can, take out, unplug. Listen to nature. Even if you're in New York and nature is the subway, that sound is a, a visceral component that filters through your fingers, whether you know it or not. So every sense that you engage in the experience is, 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 uh, is enhancing the experience or enhancing the possibility of greater reception. The greater reception, the greater the sensitivity the greater the sensitivity, the greater the possibility to feel a mark and not just make one. Because a felt mark is completely different than one that's thought about. And uh, it's, uh, I always use the analogy because I, I grew up watching Star Trek as a kid. I say it's the difference between your child or your loved one wrapping their arms around you and giving you a hug and letting you know they love you versus Spock explaining the chemistry of love in your brain. They're that different. So the photograph is only, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanical experience where everything is given equal fidelity. That experience with nature, the reason I still, and it's, believe me, it's not a lot of fun at 59 going out in the cold and I've got old injuries and stuff and I'm feeling, I'm feeling it, you know? I mean, I exercise every day just so I can keep, keep going. You know, I, I'd like to be able to haul my 35 pounds up a, a mountainside when I'm 70, if I can, you know, but, but it's that, that's the reason. And it's not a snobbiness. Like people go, oh, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're exclusionary or you're this or you're that. No, I'm not. I'm telling you, they're fundamentally different things. One is a picture. The other is an experience and a piece of your life. When you engage in the experience, it's on that canvas. The life of that experience is there forever. 
When you're looking at a computer screen, all you're doing is interacting with a, with a machine. And that machine is taking that experience and pixelating it and turning it into a mathematical language. Very different things. So I'm not object to using a photograph, but I'm, I object to using a photograph at the expense of feeling things. And feeling a mark is a really hard thing to do when people are intellectual, because when you use your head, you feel like you can control everything. That's what people live in their head. And I used to teach figure drawing, okay? And uh, I, I would have the students do 61 minute poses. People would be like, what could you do in a minute? It's amazing what you can do in a minute on a gesture. If you get the main line of action, the line that counters it, angle of the head versus the angle of the shoulders uh, versus the angle of the hips, center line of the figure, you, it's, it, it's fascinating how quickly you can get to the essence of something. But I had students that could not make a single mark. They didn't trust themselves. They were here. They weren't here because that requires self-trust. So I'd say to people, look, if you can't do it, then I'll use, use the old yoga trick, exhale into the mark. Take a deep breath, exhale, because you can't control an exhale at the same time. And that's kind of helped. But what happens when, you know, because we're all in different stages, and this might sound esoteric, so I'm sorry, but this is, this is equally important as these other things in my experience, because I've been on both sides of it. I've been very shut off emotionally uh, after all the crap I went through in my life early on. And I had to change that. And uh, because my paintings were getting tighter, and stiffer, and there was, I had nothing to give them. That, that combination of the mind, body, and spirit is really powerful, and they're all equally important. And if you don't develop all of them, and then you're, you're the, you're, you've got a, your stool is missing a leg, you know? And, and, and so what happened is, I, the, the thing about feeling a mark has to do with trust. You gotta be open enough to trust, and trust yourself to make that mark and put it down. And so even in the little drawings that I'm doing, I keep trying to force my hand further than where I want, where I'm comfortable. Again, it's that connecting this to that first. It's finding the beauty of how this is connected to that. And finding the beauty, not just the thing. And the beauty is in the feeling and the beauty is in the connection. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say it's the primacy of all of this is the beginning. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a funny analogy. And I, so when I'm working with a student, I'll say, guys, it's all about the start. And they'll go, well, give me an example. I'll say, okay. I had a friend years ago, and it, <laughs> his tragic flaw was that he was always interested in people who are already attached, right? And uh, so, you know, he'd be like, well, I think she's getting out of the relationship and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be sitting there and listening and holding their hand and he'd be there for them and, you know, in the middle of the night and this and that. And he goes, well, I think this is going to be the one. I said, it's never going to be the one. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're always going to be that guy. You're not going to be the guy that she saw from across the room and said, I've got to meet that guy. Oh, my God, I got to meet that person. You're the one who... who all relationships, and including how a painting starts, it's all how it starts, not how you finish. All the, all the uh, uh, elan or, or flair at the end, if you start really tight and you try to add zip at the end, you're putting whipped cream on a cinder block, man. It's still a cinder block underneath. <laughs> you start with beauty and connection and movement. Yeah. That's like I said, that's the penultimate for me. That's what I try to do. And, and I say to the, the, the people that I work with, look, 
anybody can spend 12 weeks on a figure drawing and measure and check and measure and check and use a plumb line and eventually get something that looks solid. But are you able to get the essence of that thing in five minutes? Are you able to get the essence of it? The refining is actually a lot easier than getting the essence. And it is like, how does it feel? Like when my son was really little, he was in uh, this elementary school. I just used to love to go pick him up at school. It was like one of those 1930s brick buildings. And there were little self-portraits in clay that the kids made of themselves. And they, they went all the way down the hallway. And the amazing thing is you could actually pick some of the kids out. Like somehow in that crude uh, desire to say something, they caught more of the essence of that kid than, 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 uh, than a painter who's sitting there rendering a photograph. And so I think, what if every, if you look at every experience like that, if you look at painting a portrait like that, you know, I love painting portraits. I did it, I, I did, did it for a year and a half straight every week. I haven't done one in a while, but I only want to paint people I care about, you know, right. for this very reason. Right you know, like yeah. the portrait you just did of your wife. I think that's really important, Yeah. you know? And so what, and I think we get lost. People get in the weeds when they study and, and I'm going to get crucified for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, people are, are spend months doing color charts, right? Color charts, color charts, color charts. Well, shit, that chip of color is only relative to the ones that are around it. On any color chart anyway, you think because you figured out exactly what percentage of yellow ochre you mixed with, you know, ultramarine blue that it's going to get you that color? No, that color is perceived by the colors around it. And it's like the sooner you want to learn about color, go paint outside, paint all seasons, paint every effect. And what's going to happen is you're going to learn about color a lot faster and you're going to learn about it in a way that's germane to solving a problem. It's not theoretical. And so there's all these. Per yeah. Uh, let, let me ask you something on that. Just just on the color chart specifically. Uh, I, I've never made a color chart. Have you ever made a color chart? Only in art school when I was forced to. And you know what? I don't remember a damn thing about it, Andrew. I learned about mm. color through painting all outside, painting all, all seasons, all light effects. Every, every time, you know, it's a thing about Corot, okay? Early Corot, my God, his painting Bridget Narnie. Uh, that he did uh, in 1829, I think it was. I mean, what people don't understand about what Corot was doing, Corot was, uh, he was, he was a modernist at the time. Most of those painters that converged on Rome, they were from all over Europe, from England, from Scandinavia. They were, all came in the 1820s. A lot of them were treating the landscape like a still life. They would draw it real carefully and they would just fill in all the shapes. Corot was doing something revolutionary, and it was at the time revolutionary. He said, when painting outdoors, it should be like a child blowing up a balloon. With every breath, it affects the whole thing. So he was working the entire painting simultaneously. Wow. And what he, what he was doing was getting to specific harmonies, hmm. right? The, and that's one of the reasons I teach in underpainting. When you, if you freeze an effect of light very effectively, it's completely singular. There'll be nothing like it. A lot of people uh, inadvertently paint in a very general way, right? And, and I say, no, I, like, I want you to get a good drawing down first. It's rhythmic, connected, hierarchical. And then we're going to put down all the darks that tell the tale of form and character and atmosphere. 
you know, and paying specific attention in the underpainting to character along the edge of the shadow shape. The character along the edge of the shadow shape is what makes two things different from each other. And so I had this dream, man, you're going to love this. And I was trying to think of how old I was. It was quite a few years ago now, maybe 18 years ago. And it was on a New Year's Eve. I'd been struggling, frankly, trying to find who I was with my work and all that kind of stuff. And I remember a friend saying to me one time, well, what, you know, what's it like? And he, I said, well, I feel like I'm not wearing the right size jacket. That's what it feels like. And he said to me, do you ever have moments where it's working? I said, yeah. And he was a physical therapist. The guy was brilliant. And he said, Joe, and the next time that happens, be conscious of what it feels like to make that mark how it feels in your body, not in your head. And I started doing that. And then all of a sudden I had this dream, Andrew, I swear to you, like th th this was, this was somebody talking to me. I walk into a gallery. Okay. And it's a big open room and there's those big flat tables for um, framing and there's work on the walls. And I walked in with my wife. She went one way. I went the other and I'm looking at paintings on the wall. And all of a sudden, I noticed these large paintings, 30 by 40, unrolled, not framed, not stretched, on this table. And they're amazing. Uh, the subject's not remarkable, but the paintings are remarkable. The color is unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And I said, these are amazing. And I asked the gallery director, who did these? And she said, well, the artist is over there. Ask her. She was this beautiful 30 something young lady wearing a flannel shirt and jeans with blown out knees and paint all over them. And she was very feisty. And uh, I said, excuse me, may I ask you about the painting? She said, what do you wanna know? And I said, well, first of all, where did you paint these? She goes over there like that flippantly. And I looked across the street and it was a fallow field like a lot that had started to grow up with little trees and scrubby bushes. And sure as hell, those paintings were of that thing. She had painted a subjective truth and elevated the commonplace. And it was like that another, there's another message for me. You know, it's again, it's not about subject. It's about what you bring to that and the love and the care that you put into those shapes. And I would say to people, look, you, you think painting a tree is just a tree. No, I think how well you respect that tree is how well you draw it and paint it. And like on the, the Italian painting I'm getting beat up by right now, it's got all these cypress trees in it and I'm trying not to repeat a shape. That's a really hard thing to do when you have that much similarity. And because the second those things get just a little too similar, you go from character to almost caricature. It happened to George Bellows after the Armory show in New York. His work took a real dive. Early on, he was, his drawing was impeccable. And even though he was painting fluidly and freely and balancing risk and care, that everything was really character oriented. He felt that his work needed to be more modern, which is such a shame. And so he gave up all the beautiful tonality for chromatic uh, color. His drawing slipped from character to caricature, just like that within three years. And you look at the paintings and they're awful. They're awful. Mm -hmm. You know, the same guy that did the painting, 42 Kids Swimming. If you haven't seen that, look it up. There's 42 kids on, a, on an old pier in the East River, and it's amazing. And then you look at the stuff he did 10 years later, and you go, how could that even be the same artist? But he didn't trust himself. This is going back to what we were talking about. 
the Armory Show came in and he said, my work, I need to get more modern color into my work, you know? And so he gave up the very things that gave his work the signature. And, and, um, and character to caricature, just like that. And then when things become similar, it becomes pattern. When it becomes pattern, the eye goes to sleep. So how do you keep the eye excited on all quadrants of the canvas and yet still have hierarchy and yet still have, you know, uh, movement, all those things? I think there's a just, it's a, it's a great study for sure for, for us to, you know, it lives, for me, it's that's the kind of stuff I think about. I'm, I'm kind of useless in the real world, actually. <laughs> I, 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 you're, you're gonna laugh I, I told you i come from a family of doers right yeah my dad could built built the house i grew up in okay wow. my brothers could tear down a wall or rip apart a carburetor i make pictures that's what i do right yeah, so, yeah. listen I man the i zombie, in yeah. the zombie apocalypse i'll be the first guy in the pot Dude, oh, no, I was just about to say something like that because, like, you know, in a in a in a situation where we're facing like international or a global calamity or whatever, no one yeah. needs an artist. No one needs an artist. No. You know, and and you yeah. know, we we experienced this in in the past. This has been the experience, and and it, it's it's what caused me to lose my business uh, way back in and well, going on maybe about seven or eight years ago, because when the global financial and people listening to the podcast would have heard this before. So apologies for repeating myself, but when the financial crisis hit in Perth and Western Australia, it wasn't 2008. It was much later because we we're insulated by a strong resource sector. Yes. So, um, when, when I, when I, when the economy just tanked, you know, I was caught in that position who needs an artist because no one's buying art you know, the essentials are always there, but the, the, the luxuries is what goes. And so yeah. I got, I had a pretty high opinion of myself because I thought what I did was the most important thing in the world. You know, just ask me, but then it was like, well, hang didn't, on a second. Didn't seeing, didn't seeing your son born change all that. When I saw my kids <sighs> yeah. born, I thought art was like this thing. Okay. Like up here, like I had just dreamed of a great art and all that. And that's the paragon. And then when my first daughter was born, because I cut the umbilical cord for all my children, the miracle of that, it just made, it, it, it put art in a different place for me. Even though I'll, I love it and it's, it's, it's you know, so much of who I am and all that, mm. it's not life, you know? <laughs> well, I, I tell you what though, man, it, it made me, seeing Hugo born, and, and again, you know, so I, I, I cut the cord as well. And uh, seeing him born, I was... Um, it, 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 it built a fire under me that I haven't experienced in years. It was just like, man, I have got to get this together quick. And, and I, I, yeah. I'm doing okay. All right. I'm doing okay. But the thing is, is I just immediately just felt this amazing wave of, of love, but at the same time, terror and responsibility and just going, okay, I'm going to, yeah, gonna they often everything. come together, don't they? Oh, it's, it's, you can't even put it in words, but look, I, I want to just go back to, to what you say. So talking to you, I, I feel a little bit right now, forgive this, but you remember the cat in the hat? I, still, I remember mm -hmm. of this. Of course, I, I remember, used to read it all the time with kids. I, 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 I've got this image in my head of the cat in the hat juggling all this stuff and it's precariously balanced up in the air and it's a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen. I'm feeling a little bit like that at the moment. It's like you've got to juggle all of these things and, and it's a bit of a dance because you, you, 
you're doing the dance, you're maintaining all this stuff, you're using these things that are available to you as a tool. You don't want to completely withdraw, but at the same time, you want to maintain that authenticity. Stupid question, forgive me. How do you do it? Because I'm still working that out, man. It's like, how do you maintain that honesty? And what, what this conversation's doing for me right now is it's going, okay, go back to the basics, go back to truth, get in touch with this and focus there. Mm -hmm. Then worry about the other stuff, but that's first. That's first. So that's, that's. Well, you know, the funny thing is sometimes it's, uh, um, you know, it's like, there was a phrase, uh, an old phrase in America years ago. They say, you know, you can't, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting, you know, you, know, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting either a bitter artist or, or, or somebody who's disenfranchised. So we've, we've got to figure out, um, you, like the teaching, what the teaching allowed me was the opportunity to keep developing this aspect of myself. Okay. And like I said, I have the right person next to me who's always, always, uh, uh, like always knows what to say. I mean, she's got a, a brilliant sixth sense about things, knows when to kind of be hard handed, you know, heavy handed or when to, and because we all have those weak moments. And now that you've got a child, what's going to happen is it's only going to get more intense. And that's where it's incumbent to really hold on to this because look, we get one shot at integrity. Okay. You mentioned Thomas Kincaid, and I'll tell you a story. Uh, sorry, Thomas, wherever you are. But um, years ago, um, he really wanted to be considered a serious plein air painter. So a friend of mine was working with a gallery out west, and they put together a plein air event, and they got all these really you know, solid plein air painters to do this event. Well, behind the scenes, pulling the strings was Kincaid. And what he did on the first day uh, he drove up with a van and a film crew and they all got out of the van and a lot of the artists just walked off. He was trying to set up an artificial situation to bring validity back to himself because he sold his soul doing what he did. And so I just think the thing is, has it been easy? No. But you know what? I've made a decent living. You know, I got us debt free. I did, you know, I mean, I don't even know how, uh, but I've always been a hard worker you know? And, and, and I always thought because, you know, I've never been the best or the brightest at anything. And honestly, nothing has ever come easily to me in my life. I've got friends that I am in awe of. They do all these different things. And I just realized that, you know, maybe, just maybe, if I put that discipline into becoming a good athlete into this thing that I love, and, and I'm honest with myself uh, about skill sets and my and my honest appraisal of that and if i really want to get better what's going to take to do that so toward that end i designed a it's i call it a pyramid of training that i give out it's something i've designed that is so effective that i give out to my students and at the base of that pyramid are circles and each one are skill sets that we need to acquire to be proficient at the craft of painting you know drawing color value color as value shape edges composition, form, et cetera. You know, always have a blank one at the end and they go, what's that for? I said, anything. Ego is a good one to put in there. But put them on converging tracks, right? Like a pyramid. And at the, like a real master painter. And um, I don't even like the word master myself because I think I'm a perennial student. 
uh, and that's kind of where I want to stay. I don't ever think about that. But I think masters, their skill sets are so finely, they're all equal. So it's like a stack of pennies sitting on top of each other. But what I do is I, I have put each of those circles on a, on a dotted line, on a converging track. And I say, what I want you to do, and you need to be really honest right now, if you want to work together with me, we need to be on the same page if, I can, if, you, if I'm to help you, okay? So where do you think between beginner and mastery, where's your drawing? Plot a point. Then do the same for color, value, color as value, shape, composition, edges, connect the dots. Then you're going to get an EKG, okay? It's peaks and valleys. Now, if you're not intensely willing to go after the lagging skill sets, they're going to drag behind you for the rest of your life. And then you're going to identify yourself inadvertently as, a, as an impressionist because you never learned how to draw or a colorist because you don't understand tone. And I said, wouldn't it be great just to take away all the excuses and just honestly go after these things? So I work with people like I would work with an athlete. I work on skill sets. We talk about these other things. I say, what do you love? Tell me, what is it you want to work on? What, what kind of vision do you have? The direction, what, where do you want to go? Because I'll have people say, I don't want to paint like you. And I'll say, that's fabulous. I don't want you to paint like me either. But you know, if you, want, if you like Van Gogh, just remember, Van Gogh understood form and drawing and value. Okay? And there are people that are trying to paint like Sargent with all this superfluous dash with no understanding of construction or form underneath it. So in other words, it's, it's a, and that's the quick fix that I see a lot of people going for. I call a lot of these people workshop junkies. You know, BC before COVID, these people would take a workshop with this person and that person and that person. And when you looked at the work, you could see the mannerisms of each instructor all strung together in this hideous amalgam. You know, and because they're looking for the shortcut, mm -hmm. right? How does Matt Smith uh, paint a pine tree? Matt's, that's Matt Smith's pine tree. Study form, study a pine tree. Make, make your hand form that form and you'll find your own hand. People don't want to do that. That takes, that's a, it's insane amount of work. But the beauty on the other side mm -hmm. is amazing, but you're not, it's not a shortcut. You know, uh, but, you know, the other side of it is because I've worked with a lot of people that are older, they go, I don't have time. And I said, sorry, I don't agree with that at all. I said, you could get better every month for the rest of your life if you care to. You, and you, you can know, do it organically. The question to ask those people who complain about time, I say, what's the last TV show you just watched? What's the last movie yeah. you saw? You got time, you know, because they can tell you about the show. They can tell yeah. you about the shows. I don't have Netflix. Uh, it, it's it, to me, it's just trash. And, and, you know, what, what do you, what are you doing? You, we all got time. You make the time, you make the time for what, you know, important. I just think it's all a balance, right? I have a, yeah. a friend who you need to have on this show. Um, okay. uh, Andrew Evenson. He's, yeah. I think he's the finest watercolorist I've ever seen in my life. He's that good. Okay. Uh, and he's just a wonderful guy, but he lives a full life. Mm -hmm. He goes to deer camp, goes hunting, you know, he, he, he goes fishing with his brothers. His whole life isn't just art. Mm -hmm. The art is a byproduct of a life well lived. There's a balance. I mean, I believe me, I'm obsessed with this like I'm sure you are. I went home last night, just a little sketch, even though I'll probably throw it away. It was just, I want to do something, you know, and I'm always studying. I'm always reading. I'm always like the, the idea of um, touching 
that thing that I feel when I'm in front of something, when I'm in front of the grandness of nature, that thing that I feel, you know, it's that thing that you feel when you hold your child or, or somebody you love, or you, the first signs of spring, uh, you know, the, the smell of the first snow, you know, there's all of these things. And it's just like, man, you know, and, and you're going to watch reality TV. You know, I, I, so I was teaching for, I, for 26 years. I taught a regular class, spring and fall, Wednesday night, Thursday night at my studio. I have a full house both nights. But on the first night, I'd say to everybody, look, guys, uh, you don't have to go to an atelier. And not that they're bad. They're fine. But you do not have to go to an atelier to become a good painter. Don't be fooled. You don't have to go somewhere for five years and, and be in a cube and do site size and do all this stuff. It's a great thing. If you can afford to do that, you can have the time and, and go and do it if you can. Okay. The point is just because it's a Wednesday night, it doesn't mean it's an excuse for you to be any less than extraordinary for you. So why don't we make this night extraordinary every time you come in here? This is a sacred space, my space. When you come in here, we're going to go to work. We're going to have fun. I have a great time. I laugh with everybody, but I'm really direct and clear. And I say, look, if you want to be here, you want to be here and you want to get better because I want you to see what you're capable of doing. Wow. And, 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 and what's amazing is the work that came out of the studio. And by seven o'clock, class started at six o'clock in the evening. By seven o'clock, there would be this quiet in the room, this energy. And it was magical. And then you see these people do something they never thought they'd ever be able to do. And oh. to me, that's amazing. And I go, oh. this is just the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. What do you want? And so see, if you think I'm being hard on you, or if you think that this is a pissing match, I'm asserting myself over you, you're wrong. My job is only to help you while you're here. That's it. And that's all I think about when I go home, I go home. When I'm in the studio, when I'm painting, I'm painting. My former father-in-law had a great phrase from his dad. He used to say, when you work, work. When you fish, fish. And, and so when I'm teaching, that's all I'm thinking about. And I say to these guys, look, we all have big lives, you know? And I, I want you to really respect your time here. If you're going to have a big conversation, do it in the hallway. Do not do it in here. You know, do not stomp on this this time that you guys all have. And what was amazing is almost to a person, everybody just got in the line and loved it. You know, afterwards we go out to the pub around the corner and have a beer and talk about art and life. And, and it was awesome. And, and, but it was really to help people realize that it, you don't have to have all of something to get some of something. You don't have to go to one of these specialized schools to, to be an artist. It's a great thing if you, if you can go to Florence for five years or someplace and, and live that life, God bless you. But, you know, I've had to cobble together my livelihood. But everything that I did went into what I do now. All those years as a designer, oh, my God, it's been so helpful as a painter. I even teach a composition and design course for painters that I put together myself that's really effective. And, it's, and it starts real simple. We talk about the beginning, starts with line only, dealing with balance, unity, variety, and interest in contrast. And, and learning how much can be done just by structuring that 
to that, that image and how you lead the eye or trap the eye, to how you dispose your shapes, all of those things, mm-hmm. you know, before you ever even think about color or anything else. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, but all of that came is a sum total of all these other things that I did. So you can't regret when you start. And most of my students have been women. And women have had a, a more of a raw deal than men because a, a lot of them, if they wanted to paint and they got married and had kids, they, taking care of the kids and all that kind of stuff had to come first. So they had to do all that stuff. And then they'd have this time to do this thing. So I've always had a great respect for that. And, and I always say, look, and, and uh, sometimes I'd have somebody literally in tears after class or after a workshop day or something and go, I just wish I'd started sooner. I said, don't do that. You are here right now. You, this is the time. The time is right now. It's what you do with it from today. And that's all. I said, do not. You can't look back on all those things that we do earlier. I mean, I worked in a warehouse in Jersey City, New Jersey for seven months before I started art school. And I got an education. I was the only Caucasian guy in the building. So I got a chance to be on the other side of, you know, I mean, I caught a lot of, caught a lot of crap because it was all black and Hispanic guys I worked with. And it was, it, I mean, I was a physically tough kid, but I wasn't a street smart kid. Yeah. And I saw all these guys that were basically, most of them were just really good guys that didn't have a good break. And I thought, you know what? I get to go to art school. And this poor guy, you know, he's running an elevator. That's what what his job is, you know? And so I don't regret doing any of that stuff. I don't regret that it took this long now. I did then, but I look back on how important it is to bless everything that you've done, to integrate all those things, and and, but to take action. And only only we know whether we're taking that action or not. Like I said, nobody's going to say, oh, don't. Don't indulge your family or, or, or make that extra cake or do this or do that or, you know, um, you know, I, I just think it, 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 you just have to do something that means something to you and that I'm always amazed what people are capable of if they're just willing to take that time. And not everybody is. Some people start out gung ho and then they kind of they realize that it's a long road and it might be too long for them and then they just go. That's it. Or they jump around. They take a class here, a class there, a workshop here. So instead of developing a foundation, a principle-based foundation, again, they're getting all this different information and trying to string something together. And I think the foundation is the key to everything. Mannerism is mannerism. How we twist or turn our hand, nobody should even be paying attention to. And yet that's the people are looking for the calligraphy and not, not the, the why, why something was yeah. done a certain way. Well, this is uh, this is such a good reminder for me to just really focus on those things, you know. Focus, go go back to the basics, go back to it. You know, I, I this conversation that we we've had just now, like this is this is why I'm doing this podcast. I just it it's it's hitting me, man. It's I, it gives me an opportunity to talk to you, somebody that I've admired for years, and now wow, all the more. And we didn't even get into really the technical. Well, that's what I said. That. Here's the, we, we <laughs> which could, is what we, I really we, would love to do at some point. Well, we'll, well, we'll do another one sometime yeah, if you man. want to. Yeah. But, but the, the point is that, that it's enjoyable for me as well. And actually, I don't have the technical acumen you have, but it's something I've always wanted to do because I'm always so interested and curious how people do what they do 
uh, both their motivation and 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 the the actual physical doing of how they do what they do, you know, and where they come from. I'm, uh, you know, from from a technical standpoint, I, I'm as you said, you know, I, I'm just as much a student as as the next person, and I will always be a student, and I I never want to stop learning, never want to yeah. stop, and I and I don't think I ever will. So I think if you're coming at this from an authentic place and a genuinely curious place, and and now you know, I'm I'm going to add this to it, a heart centered place, the feeling you're oh, way sure. along, and I think absolutely that that you'll you'll always be on a road of discovery and questioning and then leading to more discovery and it's 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 a never-ending thing and as you i love what you were saying about that spiral of of that those those you know positive decisions that are leading sort of that almost that destiny in a way that that just the the angle on that just getting tighter and tighter to that to that spiral where you're finding the authentic you i i'm i'm you know i guess it's a blessing and a curse in a way you know, I, i'm i'm I come from a broken family, like a lot of us do. I've had examples of people in my immediate family that have made those decisions that have led that spiral in the opposite direction. And I'm talking creative geniuses here. That I'm, no, I I'm, mean, we, know, I mean, I get it. We, I yeah. totally respect that. We and, all and, have and, and they, those and they cautionary go, tales. They go yeah. in that opposite direction. I've been looking at that, going, "My goodness, okay, what happened there?" And you know, I consciously, consciously try to get that spiral in the other direction and, and just stay authentic. But you know why you're going to be okay? The reason you're going to be okay is because you care to be. Right. If you, if, 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 if anybody can make excuses, right. You know, yeah. and most people aren't going to call you on your excuses anyway. Right. Nobody, especially today, nobody's allowed to even have an opinion about anything. So, you know, the thing is, I, I had, uh, I had given this authenticity talk once. Uh, in Florida to a really big group uh, of artists and um, at plein air South or something. And we're talking about external versus internal motivation. And I use the example of, of with Pollock. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, there's a story about uh, Hans Hoffman uh, or Pollock bursting into Hans Hoffman's studio and drunk and yelling at him and saying, you know, Hoffman, you talk too much. You need to paint more, put up or shut up. And Hoffman's purportedly responded, you know, Pollock, if you continue to work from inside your skull, you're doomed to repeat yourself. And I think uh, when, when you when I this is just my take on it. But when I studied the New York school, I've read every book I can get my hands on, on Pollock, Klein, de Kooning, just so I can make an informed opinion without being brash or, or, or dismissive. And all of, a lot of those painters were scrambling over each other for relevancy. Mm -hmm. And, and I think when, when I, I think anything organic has a natural fork in the road, if you're studying organically, you're going to come to a fork in the road where you go, Oh, this is taking me here or there. I think the drip technique was externally motivated and it separated them out the way you wanted, but because it came from nothing, it could go nowhere. Oh. That's why I think it was externally motivated. And yeah. so I had a woman who was an art historian who ripped me a new one afterwards. And, and, uh, and I said, look, I said, this is my opinion. When you get up there and give a talk, give your opinion. But I'm, it's not going to stop me from having an opinion. You know, I, mm -hmm. I just think because I'm not out to, to, to denigrate mo the modernist movement. I have no, I have no ill will. It's like the world's too big and it's not worth my time. I know a lot of artists who are, you know, pitchforks and, and torches about everything. You know what? 
if you want to if you want to paint non-representationally, go right ahead. The only thing I say about it is subjectivity leads to repetition, and it does, because the more subjective you are, uh, somehow during that period of time, a lot of the artists felt that uh, they were channeling the collective unconscious. You know what? If that was true, the work wouldn't have been so repetitive. The repetition comes from the limitation of self and ego. And I think that's why the work was repetitive. You know, even, even, mm. even de Kooning at the end of his life took his bike every day to the Long Island Sound mm. uh, to study, to look at color. He had to get out of his own way, you know? So it's not that I have anything against their work. I just think if you look at people's work and you look at that level of re repetition, you know, and I think we, we, that's what was happening when Kenneth Nolan came around. Uh, 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 I think uh, uh, Clement Greenberg said something uh, to Pollock about Kenneth Nolan be the, being the next thing, you know, uh, after, you know, abstract expressionism. Pollock was livid and they kept saying, well, Jackson, what's next? There wasn't anything next. So he killed himself. Wow. He couldn't go. He couldn't take it anywhere. Where is he going to go from there? Yeah. Unless he, he completely adopted a new ism, right? It, it's hard to keep that thing going, man. It's really hard to keep that thing going. Well, but it's, that's it's why impossible. I say, look, if you go to nature, whatever that means to you, okay? Yeah. And there's a lot of painters that have gone to nature, like John Marin, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't love Marin's work, but I love the fact that he kept himself open to possibilities. Yeah. Nature is infinite and we are finite. Mm -hmm. The problem with the 20th century is we, we've come to that, you know, artists love to bandy about certain phrases. Uh, and one of them was Pollock who said, nature, what do you mean nature? I am nature. Well, there you go. Okay. Or, or uh, uh, Picasso saying, good artists copy, great artists steal. And, you know, people love these silly things. You know, how about you just go out into the world and find what's yours and study honestly and see where it takes you? You know why? Because it's too damn hard. Because it takes time and it takes investment. And it takes a real risk to adopt the mannerisms of someone else. Like I said, it's, it's like Hannibal Lecter cutting off somebody's face and plastering on his own. Well, you are, you know, Emerson said it, you become, a, you become a poor shadow of another individual. And when I look at somebody's painting and I see somebody else's work, all, no matter how well it's done, I just think it's really unfortunate. Wow. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm. and, I, and that's why, I mean, life's too short, right? I mean, if you want to leave something behind, you know, besides the love that you give and get in your life, well, you know, why not think about how you connect to a subject instead of thinking about what the gallery is wanting from you? Like I said, I understand it and people all justify it. I've got to provide for a family. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Yada, 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 yada. Okay. I get it. I've had to do it all. I've had to support a, a, a family doing this and I've done it doing these paintings somehow. You know, no, nobody's asking for this painting. No, the, the, the Tetons, you know, they, they, they want oh, the Tetons. They want, yeah. you know, or, or they want the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know what? You got to find the Grand Canyon in your backyard. It's there. Yes, man. Yes. Yes. I love that. I hope, I hope if you're listening to this, you just heard what Joe just said. Please tell me you're going to write that down right now. 
That is beautiful. Joe, look, man, this has been such a treat, a real honor. Thank you so much for being here. Um, really want to thank you for being on the podcast. Before we go, what's, uh, that just seems like a perfect place to end it. But uh, let me ask you, th there's a lot of people out there that are, are listening to this that are wanting to get into art or you know, they're, they're trying to find them, themselves, or maybe they've been out there doing it for a while. Cause I got a lot of professional artists listening to this as well. They've been out there doing it for a while and maybe mm. they've lost touch with that thing. What's, what's one thing from Joe Paquette, what's one thing that they might be able to just go, okay, you know what? I'm going to go get after it. Let me, let me ask it this way, because I, I think, and this is, this is a bit of a fun question that I often think about, because if, if I could go back, I would, I would do some things differently. Of course I would. I know people say, like, you're talking about little phrases that people throw out, you know, like artist ones, but there's one that everybody has, which is, oh, I have no regrets, no regrets. I call BS on that. I, I have some regrets. I got some things that I would have done differently, of course, because now mm -hmm. I have the benefit of the experience for sure. But if I could go back and do it again, I would have done something different, I'm sure. So what's one piece of advice you would offer your younger self if you could go back with this? I'll this only I, will, I will speak to what you just said, though. I oh. think the regret is what redirects you. And I think that's a good thing. And we all make mistakes. We all make bad choices. Uh, you, know, um, you know, unlike a doctor, you know, it's only the painting that dies if we have a bad day. You know? So uh, all I say is, look, it, it, I, I, I often, I'll answer it like this. I, I talk to my old mentor, John Osborne, every couple of weeks, and I, I'm so grateful. It's like getting to go back home. That's what it feels like. I studied with him for four years. That guy was so great to me. And, and, and he knew exactly how to handle me, you know. But to be able to talk to him uh, about this stuff, I said to him, you know, when I talk to you, and we get a chance to reminisce a little bit. I think it's, it, the, the joy of it is remembering why you started. And, and the longer you do this, and the more pressure that you is put upon you or you put upon yourself, uh, the further you get from that core of who you should be uh, for you, just for you, not for anyone else. Um, I think it, it, you can get further and further away from that magic that started you. So uh, all that's the only thing I'd say to anybody starting. Just re remember what it feels like to be doing that drawing. And remember what the, the joy of doing that, because there is a way to hold on to that. Even through the shit storm of life that we all get and the pressure and all the things that come to us. And I honestly... Uh, I, I don't know what I'd say to myself other than that. As a, I'd say, you know, just love what you do. Love what you do and do it as well as you can. And maybe a little better tomorrow. That's all. And then, you know, after 20 or 30 years, you're going to be a whole lot better. And you're going to be a whole lot more consistent. And, and, and you're going to be able to experience that joy on a more regular basis. But joy it's not something that I think is just intrinsic. I think joy is earned too. That you that it it's something you work towards. I've been rereading The Art Spirit by Robert Henry, which I love. I, I have a copy that I carried in my old army fatigue jacket for four years in art school. It's all dog-eared, marked up. And he says it takes wit, energy, and work to be happy. 
you know, and it, it you know, it's like, um, and uh, I, I heard a great quote from Billy Joel, who I've always loved. He said, you know, I'm a kid from Jersey. He's a kid from Long Island. Okay. And he always is. And is in his interview, he said, he said, you know, when I was young, I was always dissatisfied because I wanted to be happy all the time. And if I wasn't happy, I was miserable. He said, as I've gotten older, I realize there's a great deal to be said for contentment. And, and, and I think as an artist, we all go through these brutal roller coasters. If you feel things intensely, right? If you feel things really intensely, you're going to feel the good and you're going to feel the bad. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't have it one way or the other. It's, you know, unless you're heavily medicated, you know, which is going to even you out, you know? Uh, but I, I just think, you know, I, 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 you know, to, to experience something that intensely, that it does something to you viscerally and it, and it changes you like that chemistry of love that we talked about earlier. Uh, or like I said, that, that first scent of, uh, you know, uh, something growing, come, bursting up out of the ground in springtime or the smell of snow coming or the sound of snow melting or any of these things, they all have the possibility of being sublime. And, and it, it, it's, it's like, if we could be quiet, I think about that for myself. When I say we, I'm not talking that anybody. I speak strictly for myself. I spend a lot of time by myself. I walk every day. And I'm rarely plugged in when I'm walking. That's where I think computer screen is deadly. Because it's, it's anything but those things. You know? It's like the smell of your baby's head. You know? What is that? I mean, like, that's a, that kind of stuff does stuff to you. You know? Oh, it does it it's like yeah. magic things. And, you know... It's the best. So, so I don't know. Uh, I'm much of a dip. I was young anyway. I was just, I had my head in the clouds. Like I said, I was just, I was fortunate to have good parents, you know, plus I was the fourth of five kids. So I got away with murder while all the drama was happening above me. I was daydreaming and wandering around and doing stupid stuff. And I got a chance that the, the, see, the thing is that, that, that aspect when a kid is on a computer now, Instead of developing their own imagination, they're filling themselves with the imagery and the ideas of other people. They don't have the time to develop it themselves. So how are they ever going to get to a point where they trust that and they do it unless they're quiet and they have a chance to, to do that? And, and that's where, as artists, I think that's really important too. And if you're plugged in, if you're looking at your damn Instagram account all the time, uh, and, you know, or, or, you know, thinking about the algorithm with this or that, you'd be better off uh, going, taking a walk in the woods. If you want to find out who you are, or at least to reconnect to who you are, you know, yeah. because who we are on Instagram is who we curate on Instagram. That's not who we are wholly at all. It's a, it's a, it's a, a avatar, yeah. kind of. Even if you're being honest with yourself, you're only showing a slice of things. You know, it doesn't give the whole picture. And, and I think as a person, I just would like to continually develop if I can, be a better dad, better teacher, better friend, better husband, a better artist. And uh, the only way you do that is to get to know yourself. And, and uh, I think the only way you get to do that is when you're quiet. And unplugging, I think, is a really big deal. So. Oh, Joe, what a treat again. I just want to thank you so much for being on this episode of the Creative Endeavor. I would love to do this again sometime. 
Oh, I, I, hey, anytime, man. This was, uh, I, like I said, really terrific. What a joy to, to spend the time with you. My honor. So thank you. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast and a huge thank you to Joe Paquette for joining me. Make sure you go and follow Joe Paquette on his website and on Instagram. You'll find those links in the description that goes with this podcast. So make sure you go and hit him up there. Go and follow him on Instagram and check out his amazing work. I know you're going to be just as inspired as I am. And I got so much out of this conversation and I'd really love to have Joe Paquette back on the show at some time in the near future, hopefully not too long before I get him back because there's so much stuff I have still to talk to him about. We didn't even get talking about, you know, the technical side of painting. And I really wanted to pick his brain about how he approaches painting, talk a little bit more about that prismatic palette and all sorts of other good stuff there. So again, leave me a rating or review on whatever audio platform you're listening on. That makes a huge difference to the show. And I thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I'm going to get out of here and get back to painting. I look forward to being with you again very soon with another episode of The Creative Endeavor. Stay tuned because next week I have got another episode that is going to blow your mind. You have never heard of an artist doing what this young artist has done. I cannot wait to share with you her story. It is incredible. So watch this space, stay tuned, and I'll see you again very, very soon in another episode of The Creative Endeavor. Endeavor.